In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sit down. The other day when I went to visit a metropolitan to say farewell to him because he was going back to um, America for a few months, and uh, I showed him some of the latest talks that I did, and I showed him talks 63 and 64, 63 being sexual relations in an orthodox marriage, and 64, why are there so many sexual problems in orthodox marriages? And I told him that those ones have become the most popular. And he said with enthusiasm, but also with much seriousness, he said that um, that's because people don't know and people want to know. And it's a topic that is poorly uh, covered today, even by priests. And the question arises again, as I mentioned when I did those two talks, uh, why do people find it difficult to talk to their parish priests who aren't married? And why do many married parish priests find it hard to talk about those topics? And why are people running to monasteries, etc., to get help in that topic of marriage when you consider that the monastics living in the monastery are not involved with that? The monastics are involved with spiritual struggle. The married couple is involved with spiritual struggle, but there's only one difference. Everything's pretty much the same, except that married couples are allowed to indulge in marital relations, but obviously monastics don't. I've noticed now that there are uh, some priests who are quite comfortable and do speak about these matters, but they're very limited when you consider that in the Orthodox Church, I think 90% of priests are married. 90, 80, something like that. There's a high percentage of priests. Anyway, um, he was very enthusiastic with that series. So I did, with God's help, 63 and 64, which, as I've said, obviously there's a lot of feedback with emails and from overseas a lot, who those talks affected. And then I gave it a rest and then I did 65, 66 and 67, which were more about feminism and the role of men and women in the marriage. And I intended to come back to that, but I didn't want to do it in a row, just in case people think that there's something wrong with me where I'm doing three talks in a row on that topic. So I left it as a, a bit of a rest. See, see what type of feedback I get. See whether it's actually received well, just in case people become scandalised, upset, but that, I didn't notice that. And um, as I said, they've become the most popular out of all the talks that I've done so far. So it's a very important topic. So that's why I've decided to do another one, which I wanted to do, but this confirmed it after the feedback, which is Talk 68, which is how refraining from marital relations can be both beneficial and harmful. That's the theme tonight. But before I go on to that, again, I want to read to you a couple of quotes from monastic saints 
who confess to the people that this is not a topic that should be really covered by, by monastics. St. Cosmas of Italia said, as he was travelling around Greece, enlightening the, the Orthodox Christians who had, who were, some of them had apostatized, become Turks, while others were not leading a very good life. And he said, it's not proper for a monk to teach about marriage, but from what is improper, we sometimes benefit. That which I wanted to tell you, my child, should have been told to you by your father and mother, but because they do not know to tell you, I should tell you a few things, and you should inquire yourself to learn more. The truth is that sex education, as they call it today, should be handled by the parents who transmit to their children the views of the church on that topic and not the views of the world. But today, people have left that job to the schools and to the television and to the internet and to films and to magazines, and etc., etc. So a lot of the youth today, if not nearly all of them, get their information from those sources, which unfortunately is a disaster. So he says here, your mother and father should have told you, and there are some parents who do do that, but there's not many, and that that's because they themselves are ignorant, or they've got some hang-ups themselves about the topic and they can't discuss it. And that's not good. They have to get over those hang-ups and start freeing themselves from the ignorance, learn so they can teach their children. If they don't teach them, then they're going to learn from other places. And, of course, the church has a job to do that, but I don't think they're they're not doing much of that either. Then he says that, um, but because you don't know, I'll tell you, which is what I'm doing tonight, uh, and... And, uh, and then you should inquire yourself to learn more. Where do, so where St. Cosma said, you should inquire to learn more, what does he mean? Does he mean you go to the Zami, to the Turks, and ask them questions about sexuality and things like that? No. So today, if St. Cosma was here and he said the same words, uh, where would he be saying for people to learn? From the church, from the church books, from the lives of saints, as we're going to hear tonight. From the canons from the writings of the saints. That's how we learn about the topic, not to run to these other places where they it's all distorted. Now, St. Cosmas, another thing that he said, as my spiritual children, I counsel you. I've told you that for me it isn't proper to speak of these things, but again, what can I do? Seeing what condition which our race finds itself, I forced myself and I have said them to you to benefit you somewhat. So St. Cosmas again, maybe somewhere else, when he was travelling around, he said the, the same thing as what he said on the first quote, which is that I'm forced to do this because of the condition which our race finds of that. And that's this, I mean, if he said that then, how much more now? So without a doubt, uh, people today whether Christians or not, have been defiled by what's going on out there. And with, the inter- and with the invention of the internet, that has made things a million times worse. Because before, people might have gone some 
to an unsavoury place to maybe buy a book or something which was a bit embarrassing and difficult. People were a bit reluctant. But today, you don't have to go anywhere. You just go in your room, shut your door, and you open up to the world of horrors. Number three, Elder Paisio said, a more recent saint, forgive me for entering into unknown territory. For the monk, for the work of the monk is to pray with his prayer rope and not be involved with these delicate matters. So he admits that too, because Saint Cosmas, Saint Paisios helped a lot of people. And he said that he would prefer not to speak about these matters. He says that he would prefer just to do his monastic rule with his prayer rope and not to involve himself with these delicate matters. That's a, that's a very, that's noteworthy, delicate matters. Because this, marital relations in a marriage is delicate. But he says here, but so as not to distress you, I forced myself, he used the same words as Saint um, Cosmas, I forced myself to respond to your concern by writing a few things that I understand from afar. What does he mean by that he understands from afar? Meaning that he doesn't understand marital relations because he's not married. He understands them to some degree, but from a distance, meaning from what he's heard, from enlightenment, from his reading. Which torment our brothers and sisters in the world. So I'll read it again. I forced myself to respond to your concern by writing a few things. So obviously someone wrote him a letter, asked him those questions. That I understand from afar, which torment our brothers and sisters in the world and give cause to the enemy. Now what's he mean by torment our brothers and sisters in the world. Well, anyone will know by reading newspapers and what you hear that most marriage breakups are inv uh, involve a lot of times sexual, or sex, one, one can say, sexual relations, whether with the, your own spouse or whether by... Other, other ways through falling with others, which is adultery. Nevertheless, it's all got to do with, a lot to do with that. And he says that our brothers and sisters in the world are being tormented by that. Without, so what he's saying is, without guidance... Without Orthodox Christians receiving guidance from those who know, preferably the married priest, then that's where the devil uses the ignorance that people have to make them fall into sins, either with their husband or wife, fall with others, or do un well, unnatural things, there's a whole host of things that happen which all comes from ignorance and stupidity, wrong information. And that's why Elder Paisus said that he forces himself, as did St. Cosmas. Now, St. John Chrysostom, he also says a few things. He says, I know that my words embarrass many of you, 
because Saint John Chrysostom, being a monk, but also he was a, he did sermons, I think, as a deacon, as a priest, and then as patriarch. Now, Saint John Chrysostom didn't spare his words. He spoke about this topic extensively. And the Orthodox Christians at, at the time, whether from Antioch, where he was first, or when he moved to Constantinople, where he became patriarch, the Orthodox Christians of both places, one can say, were scandalised with St. John. And they were gossiping and spreading all these rumours of how can he be speaking about these matters? One, he's a monk, and two, these things are private, these things shouldn't be said. And St. John Christum is saying... The reason why you think my words are embarrassing is because you yourselves are corrupt. You yourselves have dirty minds. You yourselves are, are sexually immoral. And that's why you view sex as dirty as whatever. Even though the same people who judged him would make jokes about it and talk about it and, and indulge in all these things that were improper. But that seems to be all right. So the TV can do it. The TV can make fun of it. Uh, the internet can have it everywhere. You can have posters everywhere, as long as the priest doesn't say anything. Why? Why? Why is such a warfare over that? Because the demons don't want the priest. Because the demons say, I'm teaching the people the way I want to teach them through the posters, through the magazines, through the television, through the films, through the schools especially. I teach the people. And I will teach the people, says the devil, in anything that's opposite to what God wants, while the priests will speak, hopefully, uh, the, the priests will speak about these delicate matters in an orthodox way, in the way that God wants and he doesn't want that. And that's why all these stupidities and why is he and why is that and why is that priest talking about that and why did that priest ask me that question, whether it's a married priest or not, in the confession? Things like But everyone else is allowed to talk about it. Now. Number And the last one, St. John Christum again, some of you call my words immodest, like indecent, because I speak of the nature of marriage and when he means the nature of marriage, he means specifically sexual relations in the marriage. He said, I'll say it again, some of you call my words immodest because I speak of sexual relations in the marriage, I'll change it, which is honourable. By calling my words immodest, by saying that my words are dirty or bad or inappropriate, you condemn God because God is the one who created sexual relations in a marriage. So, that's the five little quotes I wanted to say. And the main thing is, when someone is dealing with these delicate topics, is they're not doing it from their own uh, pride but they're doing it for the sake of the flock. I like to believe that the reason why I'm presenting these topics is for Orthodox Christians who are lost, a lot of them. I'm not saying I'm going to save the day, but I've got to do my part. 
and God has given me the opportunity to do these talks, so therefore I will do my part. And what's important is that there is a blessing. So if the bishop blesses, then that's a safety net. All of us should do things with blessings. St. Cosmas, when he had the idea to do, the, to do talks, to go around and, do, and preach around Greece, because he was so much in pain when he heard that the Greeks were falling away from the Orthodox Church and becoming Muslims because of heavy taxes or they couldn't take it or to get more uh, rights. Because uh, Orthodox were treated second class. When you become a Muslim, you're first class, even though it's really the opposite. And Saint Cosmas had the idea, but did he believe it? Unlike us, that when we get a thought, we think straight away it's from God. It's dogma. See, we get a thought and we say, I've got that thought. It's a good thought. But we forget what St. Paul says, that even the devil can appear as an angel of light. Now, does that mean that an angel appeared to St. Cosmas? Or does that mean when we get thoughts, an angel appears? What Saint, that can happen as well. But what St. Paul meant is that something which looks good something which looks angelic, something which looks bright, even our thoughts, can be from the devil, hiding behind something good. So St. Cosmas was saying to himself, is this thought that I've got to go, around, to, to go around and preach throughout Greece from God? That's the question we should often ask ourselves when we have thoughts. Is that from God? Is that what I should be doing? Don't trust yourselves in every single thought you get. So what did he do? Got a blessing from the abbot of his monastery, Philotheo and Manathos, and off he goes to Constantinople, and he, and he asked the patriarch then, who was enthusiastic and blessed him, and said, you have my blessing, go. And St. Cosmas and a few like him saved the Orthodox Christians of Greece from becoming... Turks. Now, before we go on with the talk, there are some words which I would like to make sure that all of you understand because once someone came to the talk here, a woman, and she asked me some, a question. She goes, oh, I was hearing your talk about whatever, prayer, and he goes, you were talking about um, pro pro Protestants. Pro I go, what, Protestants? She goes, no, not Protestants, pro no, like, uh, like Protestants, but she goes, what's the word? She goes, I don't know, but I was, couldn't find it in the dictionary and I didn't know what you meant. And you said it around a oh, hundred times during the talk. I go, well, what did it sound like? I, goes, pro pro I got prostrations. She goes, yes. She goes, what's that? So she never even knew what prostrations are. And these talks, with God's help, are listened to by people who have been in the church for years and to my surprise, a lot of priests, and also beginners. So my job is to try to make the talk, each talk, to be appealing and beneficial for beginners, for those who have been struggling for some time, and even now for priests who are listening to the talks. Now, of course, the priests don't need to know these words, but beginners might. Abstain. When we say, when we, when we hear the word abstain, because I'm going to be using that word, to abstain from food, right? In other words, to restrain oneself 
from doing or enjoying something or giving up, another way of saying it, refrain, avoid, go without. So the doctor might say you have to abstain from food for 12 hours before your stomach x-ray, you got to, whatever, or for your colonoscopy or for your endoscopy, whatever they do. That's called abstain, not abstaining. Abstinence, I might say the word abstinence, same thing. The practice of restraining oneself from indulging in something, typically alcohol or sex, whatever. So we call it self-restraint, holding back, refraining. So that's what abstinence means. Same, same obviously comes from abstain. Now, I'm also going to use the word celibate. And some of you might not know what celibate means. It's a person who abstains from marriage and sexual relations, typically for religious reasons, like we say a celibate priest. Or we say all Catholic priests are celibate because they're not allowed to get married. Buddhist monks are celibate. And celibacy is just the state, the state of abstaining from marriage and sexual relations. That monk practices celibacy. And the word chastity is another word that I'm going to be using a lot. It's the state of practice of refraining from sexual relations. Another word for chastity is celibacy. Another word for chastity is abstinence. So they're all means the same type of thing, even though chastity has more of a meaning, which we'll see later on. But when, when people hear the word chastity, they think of it more to do with sexual relations, that the person doesn't do those things. So now that we've got them out of the way, let's read, let's read the questions that one can, can um, read themselves in the Guide to Confession. Some of you have been given or have seen sheets of paper which has a lot of questions. Do you do this? Do you do this? Do you do that? Have you done that? Have Etc. Uh, sometimes they group them. Sins against God, sins against people, other people, and sins against yourself. And there, they are questions that, are, that, that Orthodox Christians can read. In the old days, and maybe some priests might still do it, the priest himself would ask many of these questions to help Orthodox Christians. St. Nicodemus says in his book on confession, on his, I call a manual to, for confession, whatever, he actually says the priest should ask a lot of questions. But today they don't because people get offended and things like that. But anyway, let's have a look at four questions which are to do with today's topic. It says, number one, Perhaps you did not abstain from sexual relations on Wednesday, Friday, Sundays, feast days, including the night before, and on the days of the holy fasts of the church. Number two, perhaps you have not abstained from marital relations before and after Holy Communion. Number three, perhaps you have denied your spouse his or her conjugal rights. That's another word. Conjugal means sexual rights that we went through in Talk 64 where St. Paul says the man's body is not his body but his wife's body and the wife's body is not her body but his body. They belong to each other and therefore no person in the marriage has a right to deny the other person because, as St. Paul says, that their body really belongs to their spouse. Anyway, went through all that in Talk 64. Now, I'm going I'm to go through ten questions that a lot of people ask about these about this topic. Just in general, what in my years as a priest that people have asked, and you you know, 
Number one, why do couples have to abstain from sexual relations in the first place? Is it because such relations are somewhat sinful and impure? Another way of saying it, are sexual relations unlawful and unclean? Is, it, is that why people are not allowed to do those things during the fast? Because the fast means you've got to be holy, and sexual relations, some people say, is unholy, so therefore that's why. Is that why? why what's, what's the reason? Number two, should one feel guilty for the pleasure associated with marital relations? Because sometimes people read things and they go, oh, that means that any type of pleasure associated is sinful. That's a question that people ask. Number three, what happens if someone does not abstain from marital relations on the days mentioned above? So, firstly, where do you find these rules that says that people can't abstain on, that people have to abstain Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, feast days, the night before, and all the holy fasts? Some people even ask, well, where are those rules? And the other one is, well, if, some, if that's what the church teaches, then what happens if someone doesn't do that? Are they punished or what happens to them? And the other thing says here, number four, how many days should one abstain from marital relations before and after Holy Communion? What number five, what happens to those who do not abstain from marital relations before and after Holy Communion? So there are people who commune and they still are having marital relations. They don't do any abstinence whatsoever. Number six, what should one do if one's spouse, who usually keeps the fasts, is tempted to have marital relations on days when they are not permitted? That's another question, which we have answered back in the past, but we're going to do it again tonight. Number seven, what happens if your spouse refuses to abstain from marital relations on specific days and during the fast? But the difference between that question and the other one is that that's when two people usually abstain during those times and one becomes weak. In this case, a person could be married to uh, someone who says, I don't want to do any of that. And either they say, I don't believe it, I don't want to do it, no one's going to tell me, or they might just say, I'm too weak, I can't do it, that's it, I'm not doing it. So that's, that's the first one is when someone's weak that usually can do those things, and this one is when someone refuses outright. And number eight, are the requirements to abstain from marital relations certain times man-made or from God? So what did we hear in the first question, the confession there? Perhaps you did not abstain from sexual relations on Wednesday, Friday, Sundays, feast days, including the night before, and the days of the holy fast of the church. Some can say, well, where does that come from? If we're told, or if the answer is, the church has these requirements and they're from God, then someone can ask, then how can we be sure that the rules above are exactly correct considering there are so many differences among the clergy today? So there are so many variations to do with preparation for communion, which days to abstain, uh, different rules some here and there. So one jurisdiction might say that, or even the same church, maybe in the Russian church, for example, there might be a group of priests that say one thing and another group says something else. So that's a bit of a like a Russian salad, as they say. Number nine, 
What should you do if your spouse does not want to have marital relations as often as you do, or if they have lost complete interest? Now, that's a problem as well, which was covered in somewhat in Talk 64, but I think that's something that needs to be looked at a bit more. So someone, it's not that they don't want to keep fast, don't keep fast, whatever, they're just not interested. That causes a lot of problems in the marriage. And number 10, is the Roman Catholic Church correct in requiring all their clergy to be celibate because they need to be pure to serve the Mass, as they say? They say that because they're going to serve their Mass, which is what we call liturgy, um, they, the priest has to be pure. Is the Orthodox Church inferior for allowing married priests? So when we compare the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, we see all their priests are supposed to be, they have, they have a rule. That rule came about, I think, in the 12th century, they made a rule. All their clergy are to be unmarried. While the Orthodox Church gives the person the choice, as long as they make the choice before their ordination. So a person, he says, I want to be a married priest. So that person has to get married first and then be ordained. If, if the person wants to be an unmarried priest, then he goes towards the ordination as a single person, as a celibate. And after that, he can't get married unless he gives up his priesthood. So you've got to make the decision before. But for them, that's the rule. Let's forget about them now. We go back to the Orthodox Church. Are the married priests in the Orthodox Church inferior to the unmarried priests? Because the unmarried priest obviously is not involved in sexual relations. The married person is. Does that make the married priest somewhat inferior? Something like that. Some people can ask that question. And are the Roman Catholic priests more pure because they are not stained, as they call it, by sexual relations. And I'm sure all the scandals um, that have happened, which are pretty much unknown in the Orthodox Church, uh, not so that they don't happen, there's, there's scandals, but the scandals that they went through is as a, is as a direct result of, their, of this rule that they've got. Now... Let me go a little bit off to another little topic, and that's going to help us come back to this. There are monastics living in monasteries who, after reading about desert dwellers and the gifts that they acquire, begin to desire to leave for the desert. Elder Paisius talks about this. He actually says there that he, he does not recommend monastics, even if they've been in monasteries for years sometimes, depending on their spiritual level, to read books about those who lived in solitary and lived in the desert, etc., because they become inspired. They, they start to have this zeal, like, oh, I want to be the same as them. That's human nature. And that's why in the monasteries where they live in a common life, they prefer to stick to the reading materials that are more for the level of the monastics living in that situation. They do read, for example, St. Isaac the Syrian, who was 
a solitary, yes, but his writings, again, are very practical and helpful for people living in the monastery. But when they start reading philokalias, which are to do with theosis and deep things, then these monks, even if they've been in the monastery for years, they start to lose themselves and they start to say, I want to do the same. That's why Elvin Oda Paisio says that they shouldn't read these things. Why? Because when a... And, and so I have to tell you that there are monks, even on Mount Athos, who, after reading this material, wanted to leave their monastery and they kept on pestering the abbot on and on and on and on and on. I want to go, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. And it's like they were going to break the walls of the monastery down if you didn't let them go. And sometimes the abbot just says, OK, just go. And, um, but they're unprepared. Elder Paisus and a lot of the saints say that they are unprepared for such a high level because they haven't learned perfect obedience, they have not acquired much humility, which comes from obedience, and they haven't acquired the virtue of discernment with regard to their thoughts. They don't know whether thoughts are from the devil or from God or natural, just coming up thoughts. That's called discernment. Someone to go and live on their own would have to have gone through all, to have acquired all that. Now you might say, but St. Mary of Egypt, she didn't go to a monastery, she went, and then she went straight away. Yeah, you're talking about an exception. We go the general way. And the general way is people who are inexperienced, as I, I did a whole series of talks on this, talks this 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, and 30. 738, all that, all that series on miracles and signs, deception, is all about these people who thought that they were holy, they could do miracles, they went out to the desert, and you read all about it in there. Why did I bring that up? Well, because the same thing happens with lay people. There are lay people who read monastic books, even books about communities. So the books that a monastic is allowed to read in a monastery but not ascetical, in a marriage, even a married person reading about, about monastic life of a community can be dangerous. Or they read books about uh, uh, chastity, married saints that lived later on as brother and sister, and they become inspired, I want to do the same, I, wanna, I, I, don't want, I want to be like that saint which again, they're rare, most, married, most of the lives of saints, the married couples indulged. It's very rare, those things. But anyway, these people read these things and they say, I want to do the same. Just like the monastics become inspired to go live in the desert, the married people might not leave their marriages, but they try to apply what they read in their marriages. whereby they start to think, oh, sexual relations isn't good, I'm going to stop that, even if my spouse doesn't want to do that, I'm going to stop because I want to become holy like I read in the books. Or they start doing excessive fasts, they start doing other things like, I don't know, I just read the other day in a life of saint that there was a monastic who, when he ate, he would grind rocks in his food and his mouth was con continually bleeding 
And you read these things which one can say they're outrageous, but not for them. Because they were, they were inspired by God, they were progressed, and they could do these type of things. But that's not for people in the world. Unless you want to walk around with chipped teeth. So these people who want to live a life of abstinence, married people, just like the monks hadn't acquired virtue of humility, discernment, obedience, and they can't go and live in the desert, the same as some people that are, most people that are living in the world, how can they live that type of high life when they haven't even achieved hardly anything in spiritual life? Most people today haven't even got an idea of the vainglory that they're possessed with. Most people today that live in the world have no idea of the pride. They've got no idea whether their thoughts are, what, they, what their thoughts are coming from. And yet, these people want to try and lead big lives, like, for example, the first, um, the first week of Lent. They read there that it says that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, no food or water, or at least to have no oil, and to do this very strict fast on the first week, because that's what they do in the monasteries. Yeah, I saw that. When I went, I saw that too. I went to Manathos and they, they and a lot of other monasteries where they had nothing. The weaker monks and had or nuns would have water, some some of them had bread. And yet we see today people who read these things in the in the books or have seen it in practice, and they say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do the same thing. So they do it. So off they go, Monday, they start their Lent. They go to work in the traffic, work all day, come back in the traffic or in the trains, come back to a family with kids crying. They go to the second day and the third day, and they're proud, and they say, well, I'm doing the same. That's the rule. And that, that is the rule. That, that, that is true. That's the rule. But one thing the dodos don't understand, and the priests need to say this, is that th- that fast is meant to be accompanied with Hours and hours and hours of services. So when they do that in a monastery, the services, especially the first week, is very long. How many hours? Oh, well, if they do, um, they do around, what is it, eight hours a day normally? How much do they do now? Twelve. I know that the Kentland Monastery, the convent up there, they started around um, seven or in the morning on those days, and they finished about two in the afternoon. Prayer, because prayer together with yes, prayer together with fasting, it's a, it's easier, and that's why we see these great saints who went without food and water sometimes for forty days, because they said that they had the prayer, they had the grace, and that 
It made them not be as, uh, they didn't need the food as much because they were full of grace. So we've got the dodos going to work, taking care of the families, traffic, stress. The monks don't have that. On the first week, they're not even doing any jobs. They don't do jobs. It's just prayer. Except those who are... Oh, even, well, obviously, they don't do much jobs because they've not even got trapeza. So there's not even the job of cooking. Except for maybe a monk might be in charge to put some bread out and a few other things. So we've got the people in the world doing what the monastics are doing or what the rules are, the rules of the church all those days without food and whatever, all those things, or having no oils. And Some people will say, I can't do no food and water, but at least I'll do no oils, I'll have a little bit of bread, whatever. And let's now look at how many hours the dodos are doing of prayer. So we can see how are they doing all that fasting? How are they holding all those days? Because you need prayer. So let's have a look. Let's, let's count it. You, you know, so, you, so you say, excuse me, can I ask you, what fast did you do? You go, oh, I did the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. With I couldn't do nothing, but I did a little bit of bread and water. I go, really? Okay. So how many hours prayer? I, go, I did my night, my usual night prayers and my usual morning prayers. And how long does that take? Oh, 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the night. Let's just say even half an hour. Half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the night. I said, really, you're doing the same fasting pretty much as what the monk's doing on Mount Athos. The only one difference, they're praying for around 12 hours a day. And that's not including their prayer rule. Like Father Ephraim's monasteries in America, the monks over there, I think their prayer rule is they wake up at 12 midnight, fire five, five, no, right? and their prayer rule lasts for three hours. That's separate to the services. So how are you doing that? Oh, it's really easy. Easy because the devil is helping you to do it. And you will crash, and most of them do. At the end, they crash, whether one year, two years, five years' time, they will crash, and a lot of them will hate fasting, will hate the church, and we'll hate anything to do with spiritual struggle. Just like Elder Pais was talking about the example of uh, some monk, whatever, whatever he was, I think it was a monk, and he, maybe a novice, and he told him, look, don't do too much prayer rope, because he could see the monk was a bit deceived. He said, just read prayers and things like that. No, he didn't listen. He wanted to do prayer ropes. He wanted to be like the others that he reads in the books. So he did prayer rope, prayer rope, prayer rope, prayer rope, disobedient. And at the end, what happened? He became possessed. He couldn't even touch a prayer rope later on. So this is what's happening today. People, Unfortunately, people don't read books on marriage, which are more suited to their lives. But instead they read monastic books, which are mostly unrelated to their situation. You can get some stuff out of that, yes. But you've got to know how to read it. I read things from monastic books to you, but I try to put it in the correct perspective for people in the world. If I read something from Elder Joseph, I'll tell you. Like, for example, where he said uh, you shouldn't go to doctors. And I said, yeah, he says that, but 
Another, another we, what we see in the canons, etc., where it says that you should go to doctors. So you've got to be careful because people become deceived. From this, they either become hopeless, that they can't do what they're reading, what they're hearing about, what they see at the monasteries, or they give up struggling or they try to apply what they read, which is beyond them. And this can be due to ignorance. Some people might try to practice what they read because of ignorance that they don't understand, or because of pride, or they want to progress, or demonic influence which can inspire them. You see, the demons like when people read inappropriate books, meaning not inappropriate, inappropriate for them. They love that because it muddles them up, and especially today in today's world because people are quite mentally ill and their fantasy is quite active because they watch television from when they were babies, very active fantasy. Uh, he can just click his fingers and people believe whatever comes to their head. And that's why it's dangerous. Um, these people usually end up deceived or mentally disturbed, or they can become heretics, schismatics, apostates, or possessed. Some examples of what people read. Number one. St. Gregory the Great, the Pope of Rome, which was a 6th century saint, he said, all sexual desire is sinful in itself. That's what he said. All sexual desire is sinful in itself. So someone reads that, or someone listens to a talk where someone's inclined to say that sexual desire is sinful, or some, they read an article in which someone believes that, so he presents the way he presents. I can even present things the way I want to present them. But that's, that's not uh, honest. That's demonic. We have to look for the truth and not present things as I, I want to point to prove to you because that's what I believe, but I want, to make a, I want to present to you what the church believes. Anyway, so that's what people... So from this, someone can become guilty because they're having marital relations, while others can try to lead a celibate life, and they say, okay, if sex is sinful in itself, as St. Gregory the Great says, then I'm going to stop, which can cause a problem in the marriage, especially if, the, uh, if your spouse doesn't want, or the person can even leave their marriage. Number two, St. Augustine, who lived in the 6th century, an Orthodox saint, we praise his, uh, a lot of his works, but not what he wrote on dogma and especially on sexual matters anyway. So he says somewhere, nothing is so powerful in drawing the spirit of a man downwards as the caresses of a woman. And caresses means kisses, hugs, embraces, cuddles, touches, etc. So um, if, if a man indulges in that, then he'll be pulled down spiritually. So from this, someone can stop showing their wife affection or not allow their wife to show them affection because they want to be spiritual and pure and progress, while others, out of supposed uh, weakness, feel that they can't stop. They go, I can't, I can't do what St. Augustine says. Um, 
I like to indulge in those things with my wife, whatever. And they can become hopeless. And they go, then how am I going to be saved? Because he said that I can't become spiritual. Number three, I found this in a book which says, virginity is a higher state than marriage, as scripture and the fathers confirm. For example, St. Amphilochios tells us, quote, many among the greatest of men, meaning the saints, have praised virginity and it is truly worthy of praise, end quote. This saint praises virginity by stating that it is the highest form of Christian life. The question is, what does he mean by virginity? But most people would understand virginity, meaning that those that a person has never indulged in sexual relations, what we call physical virginity. Because there are people today who are virgins, but look at pornography. And there are people today who are physical virgins because of their social anxiety that they've never had the opportunity to fall. But they want to. So if you can call them virgins, up to me, it's a bit too much. But anyway, note, from this statement, from what, if someone read this, someone can feel that the only true Christian life is virginity or celibacy. They can begin to try and practice celibacy within the marriage or become depressed because, they're, they're, because their life isn't praiseworthy. They go, oh, I'm married. My life isn't praiseworthy. Look how the saints speak about virginity. And they become hopeless. Or they try to apply it. Or they leave their marriages. Or whatever. It, it's a whole thing. So someone can read that. And St. Amphilochius did say that. He's a saint. St. Augustine said what he said. St. Gregory the Great said what he said. Now let's see uh, number four. The popular book today is Elder Joseph the Hesychus, which is over there. That's now become like a very good seller. A lot of Orthodox Christians are buying that book and reading it. And that's a true example of an ascetic living in the desert. His life is nothing different to those who lived in the 5th century or the 4th century or the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th. The same as those saints, that's what he is. And yet, because he lived so close to our times, and there are people today like Elder Ephraim of Arizona who still is alive, who lived with him, as did some others like Elder Haralambos the Nusiatis and the other Elder Joseph, who was a spiritual father of the Vatopedi Monastery, and they are able to give us details about the life of Elder Joseph so in that book, he used to want his monks and himself to eat food that was mouldy. If, if someone gave him any fish, though, he'll make sure it goes off first so they can eat off fish. Uh, a lot of times there was worms in the food. And as some of you have read, the monks, some of them used to vomit. And some of them said, oh, at least we're eating some meat, the worms meaning. Um, they lived in extreme heat because where they lived, they, were, they had no comfort whatsoever. They had no heating. He wouldn't allow any heating. No doctors, as we heard, even though he regretted that later on, but still during that time. Uh, they would pray continually. They would fight demons continually. 
Talking was not allowed. He would get very upset if anyone spoke. Uh, they were cut off completely from the world. They didn't allow visitors. That's why a lot of people thought that he was deceived. He even uh, told his monks to, when they had bad thoughts, to belt themselves, which is a practice that the ascetics used to use, especially when they had egotistical thoughts, apart from the sexual thoughts. But let's look at the, for example, if one of them went to the elder and the elder said to them something and then they would get upset and they felt like justifying themselves and, and saying, oh, the elder didn't understand what I'm saying or he's not fair or whatever, they would go back to their cells and, and start hitting themselves and saying that this is, this is what you get for your pride, etc., etc. All these type of things, which people can take along, along the wrong way. So what does that mean, people reading this? What's going to happen? So from this, someone can become schizophrenic by reading these things because they're trying to apply something which is impossible to apply in the world. And some of them can read this and say, some people can read and say, I can't do that. They become hopeless. As I said, some try to apply it and become mentally ill or deceived. Others say, see, Elder Joseph said that the, even the food, you're not supposed to enjoy the food. And therefore, a woman, for example, if she's in charge of the cooking, which is the way, because today we don't know who's in charge, but let's just say we'll go, we'll go standard, the woman's in charge. And the husband comes home after working all day and the children come home after the school, whatever, and they come home to food which tastes off. And she said, they, they, what, what's wrong with the food? He goes, oh, I made it like that because in Elder Jove, you're not supposed to enjoy food. You're not allowed to have pleasure. And, of course, that can also go down to you don't let your children have fun, you don't let your children, and there are people that do that. And then we go even further, our marital relations is pleasurable. That means we shouldn't be doing that because Elder Joseph... He would avoid pleasure. I heard a talk last night, and the priest there that was speaking about marriage and virginity was interesting, but he, he said a few things. He said that monasticism is being, is being attacked, and marriage is being attacked. And that's true. Of course, we've already... That we heard that in talk 65 on feminism, 66 and 67. There's a whole attack against marriage and that marriage is bad. That's what, the, that's what the feminists are teaching the women. You do not get married because then you'll be a slave and all the other stupidities that they say. Um, now, on monasticism, yes, people don't understand celibacy. They can't understand how someone can go without sex, etc. That's true. And if someone wants to become a monastic, there usually is, a, there is warfare. But apart from that... What he failed to say was that a lot of Orthodox Christians who read these things try to apply them in the world when they, it's impossible. Some, some of the things you can and some of the things, you, most of the things you can't. So, Elder Joseph said, when you talk, you judge. So people come home and they see the, the mother there on the couch Motionless. 
not moving, not speaking, eyes open. What's wrong? The husband checks the pulse just in case. The pulse is working, so it's alive. But why isn't it moving? And then they notice she is moving. Her fingers are moving. She's going like that with her prayer rope. And she's silent. And she's not speaking. Exaggeration. But you know what? There are people who do those type of things. Don't talk to their husbands. Don't talk to their wives. Don't talk to the children. Because they have to be silent. Number five. This one I took out of the green book, Elder Paisios. When I say examples like that, like the woman that was like, looked, looked like she was dead, uh, you might think, oh, that's a bit exaggerated. I have to tell you, I've been around long enough, it's not too far off of what people try to do. Okay? And I've gone through a lot of years of talks where I talk about those things. Does that mean I'm against prayer ropes? No. But I did a talk 39 and I did talk 40, uh, which I speak about prayer and I speak about how a Christian should pray in the world and what level they should try to go to, not theosis, not prayer of the heart, but prayer in the heart. Which, and there's five levels, six levels of, five levels of prayer. And I read that what St. Theophan, the recluse, and St. Ignati, uh, St. Theophan, St. Nicodemus, etc., that people should do a mixture of things, not just prayer, prayer rope, and some reading, and some prostrations, etc. Not just stick to one type of thing, because that's how you become deceived. I'm not against all that. So don't start um, making things up. Now, let's look at this story. All the Paisios not only cared for people's material needs, but also was even more concerned about the salvation of their immortal souls. And that should not only be the job of a monk or a nun. Married people, their prime care should be for their family's salvation, for his own or her own, and the family. The husband should be worried about first his wife's salvation, then the children. The wife should be worried first about the husband's salvation, then the children. That's not just a concern for monastics, but anyway, that's a good. That, that that's good. We got that today, even though the other priest was a monastic. The elder recounted a story from that time, from years before. This is his own story. Quote: I asked about an old classmate of mine, and I found out that she had taken a bad direction in life. So I began praying that God would enlighten her to come visit me so I could give her a word. Now, that's a, obviously a woman who was in the same class as Elder Paisius was when he was young. And he had found out that she had for, uh, become, she wasn't leading a proper life. And he prayed that she be enlightened to come. Now, that's a very daring prayer. But he could do that because he's, he was full of love. Well, a lot of times we're not full of hardly any love, so therefore our prayers, if we even do a prayer like that and a daring prayer, it would be mostly because um, we're proud. I had gotten together some passages about repentance. 
One day she came with two or three other women. Afterwards, she began to visit regularly with her child, bringing candles and oil. Then someone said to me, Father, she's just putting on a big show. She acts one way here, but she behaves differently in the town with the police. Would seem that she was falling with the police down there into sexual sins. The next time she came, I gave her a bad scolding and she left crying. In other words, he told her off. Shortly thereafter, I felt my whole body burning with a strong carnal sensation. The word carnal in this sense means sexual. So he was inflamed. I went and prayed, nothing changed. I often hear that when people say, I feel a very strong sexual temptation and I pray, but it doesn't go away. I wondered, why am I having this temptation? I, pr I prayed, but again there was no change. Then I took a hatchet, like an axe, put, it, put my left calf against a piece of wood and the edge of the hatchet against my skin and hit the back of the hatchet with a hammer. I cut off seven pieces of flesh, but I didn't feel a thing because his sexual passion was so great that even the pain that he was cutting himself with the axe on his calf there, uh, he couldn't feel it. The warfare was so strong that I didn't feel the pain and it got worse by the hour. I had hoped the pain would extinguish the carnal fire. He hoped that by feeling pain that, they, that the desire would go away which a lot of times it does. Uh, but nothing happened. My shoe was filled with blood, but the attack kept, on, kept up just like before. Then I got up, left the monastery without even closing the gate, and headed for the forest. I said to myself, it's better for the bears to eat me than... dot, 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 meaning than to fall. On the road, I got tired and I collapsed on the side of the path from exhaustion. I thought about why I was having this temptation... I tried to find the cause to come up with some kind of explanation. I like that because when you do read his writings or his teachings, and I, and, I, and I did cover that when I did the talk on magic, when people would come to him, he would say, look for the cause. Why did that magic have an effect on you? Or why is that demonic thing happening to you? He would always tell people, look for the reason. That's... that's um, Something that people don't do. They might think, oh, I'm going through this because I'm holy and God's allowing a temptation. But that, that uh, might not necessarily be exactly correct. It's because we open the doors to the temptation because of our sins and other things. We have to look for what is the reason that we're going through these temptations, whether it's fighting with your husband or your wife or why... Uh, you hate someone or whatever, and the, the devil's possessed you, let's just say, in a sense, that with, with, with that passion. Why is that happening? Then suddenly the woman I had rebuked, told off, came to mind and I thought, my God, if she felt carnal warfare like this, how could the poor woman take it? Now that's important. He said, he thought of her, it, because he wanted an answer, God enlightened him. And I've heard people say, sometimes I, 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 don't, I don't understand something and I just say, what is that? They really want to know the truth. And then 
they can be enlightened. And he thought of the woman and he realised it was that woman. It was after that woman that he told her off, that's when the temptation started. And he says if she felt fire in her body to fall into sexual sin like I do today, then I can't under- then yes, I can't understand how she would be able to hold herself. My God, if she's felt carnal warfare like this, how could the poor woman take it? That was it. I repented for my strict attitude toward her and asked forgiveness from God. And right away, I felt like I had just gotten out of a cool bath. The carnal feeling, the sexual feeling, the fire, in other words, was totally gone after he repented. Now, we can take from that also, that's what happens to us as well when we have any temptation, whether it's that or anything. A lot of times it can go away if we repent of what sin we've done which caused that to come along. In conclusion, the older added, when we suffer from sexual temptation, it's not always the flesh that it's fault, that it's at fault, it's not always just naturally the body desiring such a thing. Carnal warfare, in other words, sexual warfare, can also come from judgmental and proud thoughts. Firstly, we have to find the cause of temptation and then act appropriately. We shouldn't immediately start fasting and keeping vigil and so on. And I underline that. That's very important. He said, look for the cause and fix it up. He's, and this is important, and listen to it. We shouldn't immediately start fasting, keeping vigil and so on. That's what people do. And people say, uh, I have this uh, warfare happening, whether it's sexual, whether it's madness, whatever, thoughts. And they say, um, and I began to increase my prayer. And I began to fast, to fight it like the ascetics did. And he said, you shouldn't do that. Now, why is he saying that? Is if he's an orthodox saint and we hear other saints saying that's what you do, the Bible says that's what you do, prayer and fasting, this type only comes out with prayer and fasting. Elder Porfirios also read once that he said that he um, didn't like when people would force themselves to pray. He was against that. So I ask you the question. I'm sorry, and Elder Paisos also said, separate to this, one should not force themselves to pray. So let's take those two examples of two recent saints. Why are they saying that while all the other saints said differently? Could it be where, because we're living in modern times, the saints that have been produced in these modern times have a lower standard or they're not as good as the ancient saints? No, because Christ is the same yesterday, today and Forever. A saint of today is the same as a saint of the first centuries. The miracles that they did then, they do now. And if you read the book on Elder Paisos, or you read the book on Elder Porfirios, you'll see there the miracles that they did. Or what happened, and signs and miracles. Nothing different to the ancient saints. So the question is, why then do these two recent saints say, don't force yourself to pray? It's not the fact that the saints have a lesser standard. It's the fact that the people today have a problem which didn't much exist in those days. And who knows what it is? 
starts with M. M, E, N, T, yes, mental, mental illness. Today, people have, uh, the, the mental illness is so great, never seen before. Never seen before. So, why, is he, why are they saying that? And I'll explain it to you. We see in the elder, elder Joseph that he was violent with himself. When he felt, oh, I feel lazy, I don't want to pray, he would get his stick out, he would hit himself and say, you're going to pray, you're going to do this. Or force him, force him, force him. And the reason for why these two elders said this is because... Because of mental illness, people are doing things that they don't really want to do. This is hard for me to explain. I've explained it just recently to our friend Alexi there that was very inquisitive about that. And I'll explain it to you a bit. I'll try and explain it to you. We have two people. We have person A and person B. And both have the idea to make a nice, beautiful garden in their house. Okay, they have the idea. Person A says, I want to make a garden. I want to make fresh vegetables. I want to, you know, it gives me exercise, get out a bit into the, into the, in, in the sun, in the air. And I want to give my children nice stuff instead of buying all the filth um, with all the chemicals from the shops. So he comes home every afternoon from work and tired, etc. But he, he forces himself. He wants to do it. The other person, person B, he also wants to have a garden, but maybe not for the same reason, maybe a little bit for that. But he doesn't really want to do it, but he does it because maybe his wife expects him to do it. Maybe that's the way that he thinks that people, uh, he's jealous maybe of that other person, person A, or maybe he has a fantasy, but it's not real. It's not proper. His desire isn't really proper. So what happens is they both come home, both tired, both have temptations of laziness. Sometimes you get lazy. Both. But person A... He really wants it and he forces himself with good results. He doesn't get sick from it in the sense of mentally sick, doing something that he doesn't want to do. While person B, he's forcing himself, but he starts to develop resentment, hate for the garden. Uh, He starts to feel that he hates it. Now, we get another two people, prayers in the morning. You've got person A, person B. They both say, I have to pray. So person A, he has to pray, but he wakes up. Sometimes he's dizzy, sometimes he sleeps in, but he forces himself and forces himself with good results. And even when he fails, he gains humility. Even when he fails, he says to God, you help me, I can't do this. Please help me to get up. Person B wants to get up, but he doesn't really want to get up for the right reason, his desire isn't proper. So therefore, what's the fruits from his forcing? His forcing is uh, uh, anger, bitterness, hate against the prayer, 
etc. So why the elders said that is because in your heart, you have to go do what you want. I'll give you an example of myself. Every day I've got to do the service. So, what happens? One, getting up. That's, that, that's, that's the first one. Just feel like you're saying, oh, can I just have a rest today? So you have that temptation. Another temptation will be, uh, my feet hurt, which they do. Another temptation is, I'm starving and I've got to hold I've got to hold because I eat after the service. Sometimes might take, might be 13 hours later. Too much from the time that I ate before. So sometimes I'm hungry. Sometimes I'm lazy. Sometimes it's temptations. Sometimes I'm sick, whatever. But I force myself because I want to do it. But there's still temptations there. While another person who might be in a monastery is going to their services, whatever, but in their heart, they're not really wanting to do it. They're doing it for, because that's what they, they think they've got to do, they don't want to get in trouble, etc. The same here at the talk, even here at the talk. There are people who come because they want to come. And there's all these isquishens that say, well, these temptations happen a lot of times not to come, just like it happens when you go to church. But you want it, so you force yourself, and from that comes fruits. What's the fruits, I said? That God gives grace, that you feel uh, humility when you fail a little bit, when you're late, or when you, when you give in to a temptation. But this should produce fruits that are spiritual. Humility, uh, a trust in God's help, etc. That's what's produced. Now, there are other people that come here because they feel that I'm going to get upset, that some people might have that. Other people come here that, um, and they force themselves, just like the other people do. Other people might think and go, oh, what are the others going to say? They're going to think I'm not spiritual. They're going to judge me, so I better come. And what's the difference? The person that forces themselves sits there and listens. The person that's forced themselves not for the right reason sits there like this, with a snarl. They're bitter. They don't even understand much. See, that's why the saint said, don't force yourself unless you want to. It's got to be what you want. If you can't do half an hour prayer and you just want to do two minutes, then just do two minutes as long as you're consistent. Don't do what you don't want to do, whether it's fasting or anything, as we'll see as time goes on. People, a lot of people hate fasting. But they're forced themselves because they say, oh, that's what I should do. Yeah, that's what you should do, but if you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it. Better to say, I can't do it or I don't want to do it and say, God, forgive me, then forcing yourself to do it and, become, and becoming a bitter person full of hate where later on you fall away. Better to be hot or cold, but the warm, the lukewarm God vomits out. So this incident with Elder Paisus where he says not to fast and pray is a, different, a little, little, little bit different because when we do that, we bring warfare on us. As soon as someone begins to fast and prayer, it's like you're saying to the demons, I'm going to fight you. And if you haven't worked out what is causing the problem in the first place, 
why does why do these demonic temptations have power over us then then they will increase in intensity and smash you that's why he says don't do it look for the reason now the saints may have increased their prayers and, and fasting yes but they already examined themselves. They had a very good insight in themselves and they understood that this was just purely demonic, a warfare. It wasn't something that they had done and got allowed it and then they increased. Yes, that's okay, holy. So what do we do with this example? As I said, I'm reading things today about what people read and they get confused, even though I have been explaining it. And what do we get from this example? We get from this example... That when people have sexual temptations, they get an axe and cut their leg off. That's what, it, that's what it seems to be saying. But that's not what it's saying, is it? Or when people have sexual temptations, they get a stick and hit themselves. That's what the saints did. No, because that's just going to make you get proud. Or, in the case of the axe, you look like a pirate with a, with a stump. And that's not appropriate either. So, then why did the older do it? Well, what, what ascetics do is, is different to what people do in the world, firstly. And secondly, the reason why I read this example is to tell you one thing, well, apart from the fact that I just told you a hundred. The elder Paisios, if he never went through that, se- that sexual temptation, then he would have been really, really biased in helping people with temptations. Now, by the way, before I go on to that, um, do we have many examples of saints that did this? So just think because the, the person that wrote the book is giving some examples, but I, there's Saint Benedict that when he had temptation, he rolled himself around in a rose bush. Saint Martini, if I remember right, when he was tempted, put his hand and burnt in a candle when he was being tempted to fall. Another saint that they tied down and they were trying to make him fall, uh, he, t- he bit his tongue and spat it into the person that was trying to make him fall. Women saints jumped off roofs and cliffs, etc., so they won't be raped. And other saints would go out into the forest sometimes to be eaten by lions, etc., like Saint Bayusius just said, as long as they don't fall. That's how, um, that's how much they felt about falling into these sins. <clears throat> and from anything that we can learn from this is not necessarily that you're going to go and try and kill yourself uh, and you might say, well, isn't that suicide? It's a different thing. And I'm not here to, I can't explain all that now. It's something that needs to be treated later on. But um, it was things that saints did. At least we can learn and say, married people can say, if I got a temptation to go and fall into adultery, or to do something that's dishonourable to my marriage, then think about those saints, what they did, and say, okay, I'm not going to go and cut my leg with the axe, but I'm going to put all my effort not to do that. From this, married people can try to apply the same thing in their own lives, do damage to themselves during fasting periods, as I said before, so that they don't um, break the fast. The elder admitted that he lacked the proper understanding of sexual temptation and only after he went through this did he understand 
how strong sexual temptation can be. Now, some priest monks who deal with married people and married priests who, of course, deal with married people do have a lack of understanding because of their makeup. Their makeup. Their temperament. One priest said to me that he can fast for four days without food and water. And he can't understand how come Christians find it hard to fast. That person would be very much inappropriate to help people in the world because he cannot understand the temptations and how difficult it is for some people to fast from food. So that, that person needs to fall, either drop down on the ground or something from the too much fasting that he until he learns to be more compassionate. I was dealing with another priest who was a priest monk in his case, and I was trying to explain to him that um, you mustn't push m- m- women who, are, who have had babies or pregnant fasting because this guy was obsessed with fasting because he found fasting easy. And the reason why he found fasting easy is because he was deceived and the demons were helping him to fast. So he, taking his own experience, go, well, I find it easy to fast. I'm going to make everyone else fast. And I said, don't do that because you could cause a problem especially if a woman has had one baby after the other it's very dangerous but he just wouldn't wouldn't listen so my usual solution is i hanged up on him and said don't ring me anymore but what happened later on he had a breakdown so i wonder if he'll make people fast now like 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 he did before Then we've got people who, by their temperament, might not have sexual problems. Even married people. Some married priests just don't have that problem. And they can hold quite easily the fasts. But then they think, well, if I can do it, then others can do it. And then they put pressure on others and say to them that um, it's easy, there's nothing wrong. And they don't understand when people come and say, oh, Father, I'm finding it difficult, whatever. See? And that's why not everyone can be guides. And we read in the lives of saints that there were some holy fathers, some spiritual some saints that were so holy and so pure, but as soon as someone came up to them to ask guidance, they would become the cause for that person to fall into deception and lose themselves because they couldn't, they were so one can say pure, they, had, they didn't have experience in spiritual warfare because they acquired their virtues easily because they were born in, in a way like that or it was just easy for them. And they can't guide. When Elder Paisius, when you look at him and you see how much he helped people, the reason why he was able to help people is because he went through a lot of the things that people went through. He understood, even though he wasn't married, but he went through a lot of experiences. And he had so much discernment when he helped people, which is today lacking in the church. And that's why you need to read his books. There's four volumes there, and The Life, the green one. Uh, but the four volumes that they produced, Family Life, etc., they're excellent. And it's just full of discernment. He puts everything in the right perspective there. 
My mother had a problem where she was going to a priest and he was a faster. He, would, he was a married priest, but he would even fast Mondays. So he fasted Mondays, he fasted Wednesdays, he fasted Fridays, no oils, he could do all the fasts, and he was not very understanding towards people who were, had problems. So she would go to him, and um, I think what it was happening, I couldn't understand the story properly, it was many years ago, but um, my mother had a problem whereby during fast times, and especially when she had to commune, she would come back from church after all the hours of the chapter fast beforehand. She would come back and she would be shaking and very agitated. And she'll have to, uh, she used to run to the shop, come back and get some prawns or something like that. She needed protein very quickly. And this man was saying to her, I think was saying to her, no, 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 you've got to fast. No oils, no oils, no oils. And she left him. She went to a married priest, another married priest, who was more understanding. She couldn't do it. That's it. She couldn't keep up to what he wanted. In the prologue, we read on 6th of April, if you can't be a first-class saint like St Anthony, don't shrug your shoulders and say, I can't do anything, but apply yourself, apply your effort and double your talent. In my father's house are many mansions, said the Lord. If you deserve only to find yourself in the smallest of these mansions, you will be more glorious and happier than any earthly king who has ever lived. To each according to his talent. You won't be a St. Anthony, but the kingdom of God is not entirely populated by St. Anthony's. That's a beautiful little thing from the prologue. The book is there. And I always tell people, if you're not going to do much spiritual reading, but it's always good to read at least the prologue every day. It's a couple of pages for every day of the year by St. Nikolai. It's called the, Pro the Prologue of Ocrid. There's a little bit of Lysa Saints, a Bible verse where he explains it. And here he's saying that people, when they read, like I said before, the books, and in this case they read the life of St. Anthony and see how much fasting he did and how great he was, People would become hopeless and say, well, what's the point? I can't do that. And then the saint here is saying, well, you can't do what he did, but you do what you can do. And even if you receive in heaven the smallest mansion compared to St. Anthony, who will live in a big palace, as to say, if we look at it in just using things to help us understand it, even if you are in the smallest mansion house in heaven, you will be greater and happier than any king who has got surplus of money and power. And he said at the end, yes, you won't be a St. Anthony, perhaps you won't be a St. Anthony, but the kingdom of God is not entirely populated by St. Anthony's. Not everyone in the kingdom of God will be a great ascetics and like St. Anthony, but the kingdom of God has a lot of different people in there, and we shouldn't try and things that are beyond us. Okay, so we have um, the first part, and then we're going to go on with the second part, where we're going to hear much more, which you will find enlightening.
What I'm going to try and do now, with God's help, is to look at the Orthodox teaching regarding this matter. And I'm going to use five sources. One, and this is what we always should look, we shouldn't, when we're looking for answers, we don't just look in one aspect of the Orthodox Church. We look at all, that's how we get a better idea of what the teaching is. Holy Scripture is one. Number two, the canons and, the, and all the ecumenical and local councils which are in the Rada. Three, the writings and commentaries of various Holy Fathers. Four, in the lives of saints. And five, in the services of the church. In particular, today, the marriage service. We can't just look at one thing. Protestants just look at scripture. The zealots, those who are supposedly against ecumenism, they'll just look at the Rada, at the canons. You can't do that. You can't just pick one aspect. You've got to look at the entire Orthodox teaching. You look at the Bible, you look at the canons, you look at the lives of saints, the writings of the saints, the history, tradition, all those things. Now, there are some zealots which are um, moderate, and uh, even Philothos of Arcus would say that they believe that they're still in the same church as us. But these other group, they're completely cut off. So you've got to know what you're reading, and you must look at all aspects of orthodoxy and not just one. Now, number one, let's look at the Bible. St. Paul to Timothy says, In later times some will fall away from the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings came, come through hypocritical liars whose conscience have been seared as with a hot iron. In other words, their conscience is dead. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be partaken of with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Now, St. Paul is pointing out to, to Timothy that during those times, there were those in the church with, who were teaching people that... Um, Marriage is bad, and that certain foods are bad, and that you shouldn't have them. And Saint uh, Paul saying that this is wrong. He actually says, "Which God created." So God created the food, God created marriage, God created marital relations, and they should be partaken of with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. Now we go to. Another part of the Bible, which is about the seven deacons that were elected, which, by the way, was today's reading during the epistles, the Acts of the Apostles. In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, the Greeks, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Priests should listen to that. It's not desirable for the priest to be involved in things that others can do. 
like organising little little coffees and dinners, whatever. What should they be involved with? Well, let's have a look. Therefore, brethren, seek out um, from among you seven men of good reputation for the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That, in a nutshell, is what an orthodox priest should be doing. Prayer, meaning his own prayer, but most of all, the services of the church. And the ministry of the word means to preach. That's what the clergy should be doing today. Not organising raffles and not organising fat men in red suits to come and give little presents to the children with artificial beards. That's not what they're supposed to be doing. That's the job of the priest. Read all the lives of the saints, and that's what's common. If, if, if a priest or a bishop became a saint, it's impossible that they weren't liturgical. That means that they were loved the services. Many of them served the liturgy every day, number one. And number two, that they were preaching the word of God to the people. Because, they, because of their love for the people, they were enlightening them, preaching to them, explaining things to them. Today, we don't even hear anything. We might hear something on Sunday only. And usually that's watered down. So that's the job. And, this, and, and God threatens bishops and priests through the canons of the apostle, which I'm going to read in the next talk. He threatens and says... Where I say, meaning where God says that a sin is on to death, that certain sins are so serious that those who commit them will go to hell if they don't repent. If I say that that's a serious sin, then he said to, then in, within the apostle, within the canons, it says the priest and the bishop, which in the canon says is the same, just about except that the bishop can do a little bit more, but basically the same responsibility. The bishop and the priest have the, the responsibility to tell the people, people of God, listen to this. God says that this is wrong, and that is wrong, and this is a sin unto death. And if they don't do that, it says there in the canon, if I remember right, they are to be condemned, I think even uh, defrocked. And today, well, what is it? No, I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying all of them because there are holy priests, but let's just say a lot. What's, what's today? What's the threats that you hear? If you don't buy raffle tickets, you're not going to be in my good favour or something like that. If you don't come to our fundraiser, then that means that you're not a proper Christian. That's the threats that people get today. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochoros, Nicanor, Timon, Paramenas, I think, and Nicholas, who was a convert from Antioch. He was a pagan and he became a Christian. Proselyte. Maybe he was a pagan that became Jew, then he became Christian. I'm not, anyway, I know he changed a lot. Whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed... They laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. In other words, the deacons were to do the jobs 
that the priests and leave the priests free to do two things. What were they mostly? Prayer and the preaching the word of God, spiritual guidance. That's what should be done. And leave that for the others. But why am I bringing that up today? Because, well, I'm going to tell you. St. Epiphanius of Cyprus, who lived in the 4th century, he wrote, I think he put together a book or something where, on all the heresies of his time. And he, and he named one of the heresies which he called Nicolaism. Now, some of you might know this, but most of you would not. Who is he referring to? What's this Nicolaism? Nicholas was one of the seven deacons, which I just mentioned in Acts chapter 6, lines 1 to 6. Nicholas, the deacon, noticed others being admired for their celibacy. So this deacon, who was married, but by the way, he had a beautiful wife, they mentioned, that he was noticing that the others who were celibate, the ones who were not married, were receiving glory and praise compared to the married people because they were virgins and they were, or they were celibate. They weren't having sexual relations. And the people at that time may have thought that they were better. And to avoid seeming immoderately devoted to his beautiful wife, so as not to appear that he's got a weakness towards his beautiful wife, and therefore that he is inferior in his work as a deacon because he's married and having marital relations, in other words, he renounced conjugal intercourse forever. That is, he stopped having marital relations with his wife and he became celibate. While he was able to remain abstinent for a while, he was able to do that for a while, Eventually, his burning desire overpowered him. However, he did not want to be regarded as unstable and as, or seen as taking his oath lightly. See, he couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't hold. He couldn't do what he thought he could do, which came from pride. When something stems from pride, it's going gonna to collapse one day. So a lot of times when we want to do more strict things in spiritual things or ascetical things, we have to realise a lot of it comes from pride, if not all of it. And that's why the saints, exactly Elder Paisios, and even the Optin elders, they say, whoa, um, slow down. Don't do that because you're going to fall. It's not, it's not holy. It's not coming from the right reason. When, for example, we read someone who was in the world and they left and they went to the, straight to the desert. And we say, oh, look, look at that. Or they went to a monastery. And people say, I want to do that, single people. Yeah, but you've got to realise that those people were already quite spiritual in the world and were full of grace and they were enlightened to do that. While a lot of people say, I'm going to go and live in the monastery or I'm going to do this or I'm going to be pure in my marriage or whatever. And it's all driven by pride and the demons behind fueling the pride. Anyway, that's what happened to him. He wanted to be acknowledged. Instead of returning to his wife in humility, he engaged in unrestrained sexual immorality. 
which is what happens, what I said earlier on. That's what happens usually. People fall. And he fell. But St. Epiphanius of Cyprus describes the type of immorality that he was doing, and he said, sex practices against nature. And in that, in that as, as the Greeks know, that, it's, that means unnatural sins, which either means that he was falling with people of the same sex, or perhaps even with beasts, or doing unnatural things with women, uh, which is the theme of our next talk. In this way, he started the heresy of Nicolaism, which believe that as long as they abstained from marriage, this shows the illogical, it was not a sin to exercise their sexual desire as they pleased. Let's read that one again. Um, it was not a sin to exercise their sexual desires as they pleased. Whatever is an error, whatever is demonic, whatever is against God always has illogical things that come out of it. This is illogical. So if you're married, that's bad. But if you indulge in these things outside of marriage, then you're okay. And in all these things, all these heretical, these distortions, they all, all have illogical ways of thinking and, and results. Actually, there are two references to Nicolaitans, Revelation chapter 2, line 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, says God, in other words. That God saying to the, uh, the church in Ephesus that one good thing that you've got is that you hate exactly like I hate the Nicolaitans what they are doing, their deeds. Not hate them, but hate their deeds. And also, in, the, in uh, chapter 2, line 14 to 16 of Revelation, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, Balak, Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So there are some fathers that believe that it wasn't Nicholas the deacon, it was someone else. Uh, I'm going with Saint Epiphanius and a few other fathers that said that that's who it was. But it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Uh, the main thing is that this person wanted, out of pride, to abstain from his wife and he, he caused the whole catastrophe. Then we go now to uh, another part of the Acts of the Apostles, which I'm going to read, which you might think, what's it got to do with today? But it's going to help us go to the next section. It says here, Acts chapter 15, line 1 to 35, I'm only going to read parts of it. It says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, the Christians in other words, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So the Jews, as we know, a, a condition for them was that they be circumcised. When Christianity came along, they said that's not necessary, baptism. 
But because there were many Jews within the church, they kind of still had that mentality and they were saying, no, no, they must be circumcised. Men must be circumcised or they can't be saved. Um, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas tried to explain to them that's not necessary. That's a Jewish practice not necessary now in the Christian church. So they didn't listen. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So they said, this needs a decision. Let's, so the people of Antioch said, you go up to Jerusalem and speak to the other apostles and the elders up there, the ones who experienced, and ask them what should be done about this matter. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So at this meeting, there were people there who were saying that the pagans, the Greeks who weren't Jews, if they're going to be Christian, they have to be circumcised. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So St. Peter got up and said his part. And he said, no, these pagans that went, once they were baptised, they received the grace just like those who were already circumcised who became Christians. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a heavy weight on the neck of the disciples with which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they are. The whole assembly fell silent as they listened then to Varnavis and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Then, Peter, then once they heard Peter, then Paul and Varnavis started speaking about all these pagans that were baptised and how the grace of the Holy Spirit was evident and all the miracles that occurred without them having received circumcision. When they finished, James then spoke up and said, Brothers, he said, listen to me. And then he went on and said his opinion, which I've left out. That's not important. It's, I mean, it is important, but I can't do everything. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God, to the pagans, in other words. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, they chose Judas called Barsavas and, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. This is the decision of this gathering, which we call the First Synod. See, even though the, the Roman Catholics say that Peter is the one that determines doctrine, we see that in this synod that Peter spoke, people remained silent. People didn't say, OK, Peter spoke. That's it. That's what we're going to believe. That's it's finished. That's the decision because that's what they 
the, the Papists believe that when the Pope sits on his throne, when he speaks, that what he says is from God. That's why we say the authority of the Roman Catholic Church is the Pope. The authority of the Orthodox Church are the synods, the decisions of the synods that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, as we saw here. See, if Peter had that power, then they should have said, that's it, but they didn't. Instead, we see that Barnabas and Paul spoke, and after them, even James spoke up. And then this is what they wrote. This is their decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You do well to avoid these things. That's it. That, what we call, was the first council. And it's important for you to know that it says here, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. When the bishops get together in a council, then that's where God's Holy Spirit works, enlightens them, and comes up with decisions which are according to his will. Which is, that's not how it is in the Roman church. And that's why we will never, we will never ever unite with them. Not that we want that, because we hope that they, to repent, but they're going to have to say that they were wrong for 1,000 plus years, that the Pope is not without fault, that the Pope is not the supreme head of the whole church, because what they say is that Christ left the Pope to be the head of the church, while the Orthodox say the decisions come out of the ecumenical councils and all these councils that come together, as we're going to see in a minute. So... That was the first synod. That's why I decided to do that, so that you can understand the next story, which is about the first ecumenical council. What happened there? The first ecumenical council, I mean, that was a council, but now we have representatives from every church in the world. That's why it's called ecumenical. All the churches were represented. They were summoned in 325 by the emperor, St. Constantine the Great, who desired unity in the Roman Empire and thus called the church's bishops together to settle the raging of the heresy of Arianism, which taught the, the doctrine that Jesus Christ was a created being and therefore not truly the one God. Now, Arius believed that Christ was a created being, not God and man. Arius was a priest of Alexandria. Arius was gifted. Arius was an ascetic. Arius was quite good-looking, that's who they say. Very charismatic. Very ascetical-looking. And people were listening to him. So don't be fooled by looks. Or because someone could be fat, it doesn't mean that they don't know something. Or because someone's skinny-mini because they've got anorexia, it doesn't mean that they're holy. You see, you've got to be careful not to go on with externals. So Arius was very impressive and he had the way and he was gifted with his mouth and he was able to explain things in such a way that he influenced the whole church. Arianism spread throughout the whole church. 
First in Alexandria, then it spread everywhere, and the empire was being torn apart. And St. Constantine said, this can't go on. Let's call together all the bishops and um, discuss this matter in the same way that they did in Jerusalem with the question of circumcision, but this was even a greater council than that. So, the council was held in Nicaea, which is near Constantinople, which is today Asia Minor and Turkey somewhere there, and was attended by 318 God-bearing fathers. Arius and his writings were anathematised and his books were cast into the fire and he was exiled. Present at this council were St. Nicholas, St. Athanasius, St. Spiridon, St. Paphnutius, St. Achilleos of Laris. So many great saints were present at this council. Miracles occurred, four miracles occurred at the council. The, the first, one of the miracles was St. Spiridon when he converted the tile into the three elements because Arius wasn't listening and sometimes uh, miracles are necessary. So St. Spiridon said, I want to speak. And the other bishop said, no, they didn't want him to speak because he was just a farmer. He was like a shepherd. And um, they didn't want him to speak because they thought there's no way he's going to be able to talk to Arius, who was, one can say, like a theologian. But St. Constantine said, no, he's part of the synod. He's going to be allowed to speak, and I want him to let him, let him speak. And the bishops were a bit upset because they said he's going, to, he's going to muck everything up because he can't speak. But that's true. There are some people who are holy, and they can't. They don't know. They haven't got the insight, uh, even though they're full of the Holy Spirit, but they don't have that theological mind. We have some saints that were theological, St. John Christen, Basil the Great, and St. Gregory the Great, St. Simeon the Euthyphro, all these great saints. But we have others who were holy but weren't able to articulate. They weren't able to speak up and say what the great theological things. And St. Spiridon was obviously one of them. So he got up, but St. Spiridon didn't want to speak to him. He said, why speak? I can't speak. So he got a tile and he said to Arius, got the tile and he says, in the name of the Father... And he blessed the tile and the fire came out of the tile and in the sun and then water thing came out in the Holy Spirit and what was left was sand. And then he said it again in the name of the Father and then it all came back together in the sun, and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Achilleus also of Larissa did a miracle whereby he said to um, Arius, if your dogma's correct, then make oil come out of this uh, rock. And Arius couldn't do it. And then again, Achilleos, St. Achilleos, blessed the rock. And then what happened was that it started to secrete oil. And then there was the miracle of St. Nicholas, where it was going on and on in the session. They were trying to explain to this mad, possessed person. And he wouldn't listen like all people that are proud. Sometimes, you know, we should say to ourselves when we when you fight with your wives or husband and you can't admit you're wrong when deep down you know you're wrong, and then you say to yourself, maybe I've become like Arius. And be careful that we don't have the same result as Arius. We all get into those stubborn moods where we can't admit that we're wrong. Arius's mother asked him, who's correct, you or Athanasius? Because he was fighting with Athanasius in Alexandria. Because St Athanasius was the deacon at the time, but he was the main person 
who was writing about this dogma of the incarnation. Saint Alexander, who was the uh, patriarch of Alexandria, he left that to Saint Athanasius. So Arius' mummy said to him, who's right? My son, Arius, uh, who's right, you or Athanasius? He said, mum, Athanasius is right, but I can't admit it. I can't go back. Who else said that? Oh, that's right, the devil. He also said that. He said that he knew he was wrong and he still knows he's wrong, but he won't, he won't repent. So every time we know that we're wrong and we don't want to admit our mistakes, we become like demons. Now, some of you might say, oh, you're all the time using the word demon. Well, Elder Paisios, in if you read his teachings, there's a part there he says, when you talk to people who are so proud and they don't want to listen, he says they become like, it's like you're talking to a demon, he said. He said it straight out. And we, sh- we can't hide the fact that we do become demonic. Anytime me, you or anyone is stubborn and knows the truth and we don't want to admit it, even not on dogmatic issues, it could be just something small, something trivial, something everyday things, even at work. Why didn't you give in that paper? Oh, oh, I didn't see it. No, you did see it. I bet you did see it. No, no, I didn't see it. But you know you did see it. So in a way, you'll become like Arius. So St. Nicholas, when he saw that miracles weren't working and he wouldn't listen, he slapped him across the face. One big, good fapa, as they say in Greek. And what happened then was that the bishops were shocked. They said this is unbecoming for a bishop to do that, and he was put in jail. Unheard of, especially in front of the emperor and things like that. So he was put in jail, and later on, as we know, that I can't remember the exact details, the, the mother of God appeared uh, with, the, um, with his ora, with his omophorion, what the bishops wear, and with the gospel, and, and said, words to the effect of that you, for us you are a true bishop, Saint, I think Constantine saw the same thing. I can't remember the full detail, but later on the bishops realised that his zeal that he had was not from pride or from anger, but was a righteous anger, similar to when Christ went into the temple when the Jews were selling all their pigeons and whatever else they were selling there, and he turned over the tables and was using the whip and was whipping. So not all anger is sinful. There is anger which is sinful, and there's anger which is given to us to have to be against evil, to be against falsehood, to be against the devil, to be against the passions and the world when it is trying to entice us. Or when we see unrighteousness, this is called righteous anger. The problem is a lot of times when we get angry, like a lot of zealots, a lot of people go, I'm angry because you're not orthodox and become very aggressive and like they, they start shaking. They believe that that comes from the Holy Spirit. But not all anger comes from the Holy Spirit. Because St. Nicholas, even though he got angry and, and, and smashed him across the face, he still remained peaceful. He still was full of love. Love even for Arius. Because when he hit him, he just didn't hit him because of his blasphemy, but he hit him also to try and wake him up. 
And that's why St. John Chrysostom says, when, when someone blasphemes back in the Byzantine Empire, he says, when someone, you hear someone blaspheme God, the mother of God of the saints, go up and smack him across the face and your hand will become holy. But of course, when we try to do that, a lot of times it comes from pride. We've got to be careful of what's driving us. Like the fellow on the train, like I told you years ago, when I was on the train, there was this old Carinders fellow who was trying to um, convert me to his church and he gave me some periodicals there. And one day came on the train when I was going to teach, when I was teaching. And uh, he came up to me and he said, how are you, whatever. He goes, have you got that material that I gave you? No, I haven't got it. He goes, oh, what happened? He goes, I said, I burnt it. And then he howled. And when I say howl, I'm not joking, he howled. And he started, he called me, in Greek, he called me um, Latin dog, papal lover, I'm this, I'm that, I'm a hero. I don't know, he called me all the, and he was screaming on the train. Thanks God there's only two, three people, and for some reason they didn't even look up. I don't know how God just blocked, blocked off, and they didn't even put up their head, they just reading their newspapers. And this guy was screaming at me, and, and he thinks that's from zeal. But it's not. Even if he thinks I'm a heretic, the saints that had zeal, the saints that were, were confessors and used to speak up, had the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, kindness, meekness, etc., even when they were like lions in, their, in the matters of faith. These people, they're just angry and they fight with everyone, even for things that aren't to do with the faith. Like the other wolf that I um, encountered at another house when I was a lay person at our name day, and I knew that this woman was blaspheming that she would say that the mysteries of the other churches are all invalid. Only her church has got the true mysteries. Only her church is orthodox. And she comes in, and she comes up to me, and she puts out her hand, and she says to me, uh, happy feast day. And I just stayed there. Didn't move my hand. Kept it on my lap. I was a lay person at the time, wasn't a priest. And she goes, again, happy name day, see? And I didn't do anything. So she got embarrassed. Not that her faith, that supposedly, that she's a bit... Anyway, she howled as well. I don't know what it is with these people, but they all howl. So she went, woo, like that as well. And then she started screaming. And then she ran out the house. It was around eight in the night, and it was winter, so it was nine. And I was in the house, and I could hear outside screaming screaming and she was saying the holy fathers read the holy fathers and she was howling and screaming and the owners were running out to try and say to, to come back to their party to their name day then her husband came up to me um aggressively and i thought that was it i was going to get my head smashed and uh he said what did you say to her and i said i just told her i cannot greet someone who blasphemes the mysteries that I take. I'm, I'm not going to go to church and partake of the body and blood of Christ and have that stupid woman tell me that I'm partaking of bread and wine. No, sorry, can't do that. And he goes, you've got no love. So they've got love that they blaspheme. Anyway, but anyway, so he walked off and he joined in the howling as well. So he went outside. So he was howling. She was howling. I thought I was in like the desert or something where there were these coyotes or something like that. They were howling and howling 
and they got in the car and they drove off. For them, what they did was from the Holy Spirit because they got zeal like the Holy Fathers. But in reality, they don't have zeal. They got offended because I didn't put out my hand. And to hide their pride and they, that they got vexed, they hide it behind that they're orthodox. See, these things are illogical, blasphemy, fanaticism. That's how you know when something's from God and something's not. Like some other people that we know, they also are characters. They're in a worse group. These ones are completely, completely logical. And they've got a shop. Like a, look, a little corner shop, supermarket type of thing. And um, they open on Christmas Day, on, on all calendar Christmas, Pascha, and all the feast days, they open up when they don't have to. They don't need the money, they don't have to, but they still open up. Anyway, so someone went there one day, and it was the new calendar three hierarchs of Greece, where that's a public holiday, I think. So this old calendar's man said to this fellow, he goes, see what's happening? See how the church of Greece has become? He goes, what? Sorry? He goes, see how they've become? It's supposed to be a public holiday, and they open their shops up. That's how far off they've gone in Greece, the new calendrists. Do you get the joke? He opens up his shop every single day of the year. That's what's called illogical and crazy. And when, you, and when he said it, he kind of realised what he said. But did he repent? No. Does he continue? Yes. So this is the difference between someone who's got zeal from God and someone who's got zeal from pride and demonic reasons, as we're going to see soon coming up. So, also during this meeting, there was a discussion raised by many of the Holy Fathers that the clergy should stop having marital relations with their wives because of the fact that they're clergy, they serve the liturgy, that they shouldn't have marital relations. And that was the discussion point. And people were saying their opinion, and they were pretty much positive to do it. Now, whether some of these great saints agreed, but what's important is that um, even those holy fathers who were full of grace, because there was 318 God-bearing fathers, and the one that stood out from the history is St. Paphnutius, who was an ascetic, a virgin, pure, known, and let me tell you about him. He was he's also known as St. Paphnutius the Confessor. He was a disciple of St. Anthony the Great, who became a bishop in Egypt. St. Paphnutius had been persecuted for his orthodox faith and had suffered mutilation of the left knee, and they also pulled out his right eye because of his confession of orthodoxy, and he was also... Um, this is from the Roman pagans and all that. We're not, we're not persecuting Christians before St. Constantine's Edict of 313, which said no more persecution of Christians. That happened before 313. So he suffered a lot from the pagans. He was later condemned to the mines to work, which most people died that went there. Anyway, later on, Christianity was free, and he came to the First Ecumenical Council. He was greatly honoured and valued by Constantine the Great, who often kissed him on his missing eye, lost 
for the truth of orthodoxy. St. Constantine honoured him, as did many of the other saints that were present at the Synod. They really, uh, uh, because a lot of the saints that were there had missing fingers and missing eyes and a lot of these things because they were tortured during that time. Uh, but this one stood out. He was also greatly respected and honoured because he had kept strictest chastity all his life. He was a strict, virgin, pure. And in addition, St. Paphnutius was a zealous defender of orthodoxy in the face of the Arian heresy. Because remember, after the persecution stopped with the pagans, then the church was, there was no more attack from that. Now they were being attacked from within the church, within their own ranks from bishops and priests, especially this, this person here. Arius. Now, according to Sozon Men's history, he was a 5th century historian. He wrote a history about that council and about what happened. He said, while the bishops at Nicaea were thinking about this, some thought that a law ought to be passed that bishops, priests, deacons and subdeacons should hold no intercourse with the wife they had married before they entered the priesthood. Because remember at that time, married bishops were allowed. But Paphnutios, the confessor, stood up and testified against this proposal. He said, and this is important, he said that marriage was honourable and chaste and that living together with their own wives was chastity. Now that is to me, when I read this, I thought that was a very, very powerful statement. Because, obviously, this thing about sexual relations, as we can see from the first centuries, carrying on now to the fourth century, there's always this kind of, what we say in Greek, revma, this current, which is always a move to kind of say that sexual relations in marriage is something wrong and trying to even, at least to stop the clergy of indulging in that because they should be pure. And we can see that. But what does St. Paphnutius say? That marriage is honourable and chaste, which is a word that we usually use for those who don't have sex at all. Chaste. And that living together with their own wives was chastity. You see, we get mixed up with that definition. What is chastity? People think, oh, chastity means when someone denies and doesn't have any sexual relations. No, St. Paphnutius is saying married people who do have sexual relations are chaste, and they are practising chastity. Paphrutius advised the synod not to formulate such a law, for it would be difficult to bear. It would be difficult for the priests and deacons and the bishops of the time to bear that, not to have relations with their wives, and might serve as an occasion of incontinence to them and their wives. In other words that they could fall with someone else. And he reminded them that according to the ancient tradition of the church, those who were unmarried when they were ordained, they remain like that. So when I was ordained, I wasn't married. So I stay. I cannot now get married because I'm already ordained. When a person is ordained while married, he remains married how you were ordained is how you stay. Married, you stay married. Single, you stay single. Um, and he said here, and he reminded them that according to the ancient tradition of the church, those who were unmarried when they were ordained were required to remain so, but that those who were married 
were not to put away their wives, not to separate with their wives. Such was the advice of Paphnutius, although he himself was unmarried, and in accordance with his advice, the synod agreed not to pass a law about it, but left the matter to the decision of individual judgment and not to force them. The synod decided to go according to that. They discussed it. They were enlightened by the grace of God. They all agreed, which is what's called an ecumenical council. And they said, yes, this is how we will have it. Paphnutius is correct, just like the third ecumenical council said that St. Kuro of Alexandria is correct when he said that the mother of God is Theotokos and not Christotokos, that she gave birth to God and man and not to a man, like Nestorius was saying. So here, this synod took the advice of Paphnutius and they said, yes, this is, this is correct. And they accepted it. And they said it should be left to each individual deacon, priest, subdeacon and bishop, whether they want to continue to have relations with their wife or not, but they must not be forced. So he said that marriage was honourable and pure and that living together with their own wives was chastity. That's what St. Paphnutius said. Now let's look at the dictionary, the worldly dictionary. What do they say chastity? They say chastity is the state or practice of refraining from extramarital or especially from all sexual intercourse. So even in the world, chastity has two meanings. One, complete abstinence. Or two, a couple who do not break their marriage vows, they do not have sexual relations with anyone else, but only with each other. And they also are practising chastity. So it's like the dictionary was written with St. Bafnutius's help, but it wasn't. But that's obviously, through the history, even the secularists understood what it meant. Now, let's see what St. John Christum says. Marriage is not an evil thing. It's adultery that is evil. It's fornication that is evil. Marriage is a, is a cure to eliminate fornication. Marriage was not established for immorality or fornication, but for chastity. God gave marriage so that people can be chaste, so that people can be pure, St. John Christum is saying, which is exactly what St. Paphnutius said. That marriage is chastity. So we go to number two. Listen to what St. Paul says. This is what St. John Christum is saying. Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. There are two purposes for which marriage was established to make us chaste and to make us parents. There are two purposes for which marriage was established. One, to make us chaste. Two, to make us parents. Of these two, the reason of chastity is the most important. So again, he's actually saying that even if a couple engages in sexual relations, they still are considered chaste, pure. And there are two reasons, he says, that's why people get married. Of course, there are other reasons, but that's, um, that's John, St. John Christum at the time who was speaking to people who were coming out of paganism. They're all having, like they all used to have orgies and sexual, all these things, and he was trying to teach them, look, stop that, be 
get married and stay with one person. That's why he emphasised that. While other saints, St. Basil and others could say, the reason for marriage is for the couple to struggle together so they can be saved. All the different saints have different ways of of looking at, at that. But the main message today is that it's still people are still practising chastity even while they're having relations. The next one, number three, St Paul, says St John Christum, establishes laws concerning marriage without being embarrassed or blushing and with good reason. St Paul, as I've mentioned in the last talk, 64, speaks a lot about the matter of sexual relations with married couples. And St John Christum is saying he didn't blush, he wasn't embarrassed. Why? St Paul's master... Christ honoured a marriage and so far from being ashamed of it, blessed the occasion with his attendance and his gift. Indeed, he brought a greater wedding gift than any other when he changed the nature of water into wine. How then could his servant, meaning St. Paul who wrote the epistles, blush to establish laws concerning marriage? If St. Paul's master, meaning Christ, blessed the marriage by being present at a marriage and therefore blessing the marital relations that would to occur after marriage, then why should he say, St. Paul, be embarrassed, and then St. John Christian, then why should you say that I should be embarrassed? What we should be embarrassed of, I might add, is that things that are immoral, not what's allowed in marriage, immoral, fornication, adultery, all those things. Then we have the example of the wedding of Cana. As, and I was going to read it, but I haven't got time. But what's important is there, one part of it, and sometimes I read these things because you, some of you people aren't aware of the writings of the Bible, and that's not good. That's why I waste a lot of time. Sometimes I've got to read things because some of you aren't aware of it. You should be reading the Bible often, and it's a sin not to, because it's like, why don't you want to read something which has given you salvation? But anyway, it says in there that the Christ and his disciples and mother were invited to this wedding. Christ was not invited to this wedding because he was special. He was just invited like everyone else. How do we know that? Because later on, when he turned the water into wine, they never thought and said, I must have been him. They didn't say that. They were wondering, who did it? Who, who, who changed this? Who did this great thing? They never looked at him because they didn't know. He hadn't done a miracle yet. Now, what's interesting here is firstly that he changed the water into wine. This is important for what's coming up. That he changed the water into wine, but not only did he make wine, but he made an excellent quality of wine so that the people who drank it would have pleasure interesting when we come to the pleasure section but then we have Christ himself who's blessing and making water into wine and making good quality wine so that people can enjoy it and not only that he was present at a marriage which means that there's going to be marital relations so he blessed that and also he did something which was the greatest which was that it says here this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Meaning that the, the first miracle, public miracle that Christ did was at a wedding. Not in the desert, 
not with an ascetic. Of course, the example of virginity is himself and his mother and St. John the Baptist, which is great. But nevertheless, his first public miracle was at a wedding where he blessed wine and he showed with what honour he gives to marriage. And this is important because the heretics that we're going to read about soon are going to say completely opposite, which again shows what I'm saying, which is illogical. People, when, when someone's in heresy or in error, their thought processes are illogical. They're darkened. They're just, they don't think right. Remember in talk 63 or 64 that I read to you from the marriage service. I'm going to read it to you really quickly because it confirms what I've just said, in particular what St. Paphnutius said and what St. John Chrysostom said and what St. Paul says and all the great fathers. What, well, let's see what it says here. It says the priest is, is going through the, great, through the litany and he says that, that he will bless this marriage, meaning God, as he blessed the marriage in Cana of Galilee, let us pray to the Lord. And the choir says, Lord, have mercy. So making reference, that's why I wanted to go through the, the marriage, the marriage the, in the Bible, so you can be familiar with it more. The next one, that the Lord our God will grant them an honourable marriage and a bed undefiled. Let us pray to the Lord. Choir, Lord, have mercy. So the priest is praying to God and saying, that let this marriage be honourable and a bed undefiled, meaning the bed to be pure. But how can the bed be pure if sexual relations is impure? How can that be? Is the priest praying, perhaps he's praying, for them to live as brother and sister? So maybe it says that the Lord our God will grant them an honourable marriage and a bed undefiled, and I'm not saying it's a joke, where they live as brother and sister, let us pray to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. But that can't be right, because then we see on the next prayer that he will grant to them chastity. Chastity, maybe that's what it means. Chastity means complete abstinence from all relations. But then that can't be right, because then the next part says, and the fruit of the womb as is beneficial for them. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. And the next one, that he will grant to them enjoyment of the blessing of children and a blameless life. Let us pray to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. So, first he's saying that the marriage is honourable. Then he's saying that the marriage is chaste. Then he's saying that the bed's pure, undefiled. And then he's saying to have children. So, in other words, when a couple come together and have their, and have their relation marital relations, they are chaste and they are blessed by the church and their bed to be undefiled means that they are to have relations only with each other. And today, because of the problem with adultery, that is a big message that should be said. Because today it's easy to fall into adultery, just got to go on, on online, as someone says, that he will grant to them enjoyment of the blessing of children and a blameless life. So you, if you have children, you've got a, you've still got a blameless life. In other words, 
Don't have any thoughts that sexual relations makes you guilty in front of, in front of God. And then he does a little prayer. Let us pray the Lord of mercy. O Lord our God, who in your saving providence granted by your presence in Cana of Galilee to declare marriage honourable, now also is the same Lord, maintaining peace and oneness of mind your servants, say John, Maria, whom it has pleased you to join together. Cause their marriage to be honourable, keep their bed undefiled, mercifully grant that they may live together in purity and enable them to reach ripe old age, keeping your commandments with a pure heart. And not only that, they want, they even, the prayer, some I didn't put in, that they say to have third and fourth generations of children, grandchildren, etc. Do we read anything about brother and sister? No. Well, why can't you say, some of you say, why can't we? Because you're not a saint and you fall. And today with the amount of temptation, that's a recipe for disaster. St. John Chrysostom says, let marriage be held in honour by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled, Hebrews 13.4. Any writings to do with marriage, they always quote that there. The marriage is honourable and the bed is undefiled. Then St. John Chrysostom continues, why else would you be ashamed at what is honourable or blush at what is undefiled? Why are you ashamed? Because I'm discussing these things, St. John Christen is saying. I want to restore marriage to its due nobility and to silence those heretics who call marriage evil. Yes, those who try to put any negativity on marriage are evil according to St. John Chrysostom and according to the church, as we're going to see in a few minutes. Who says marriage is evil? Well, today, the feminists. Who else are saying marriage is evil? Well, it could be monastics who don't have their heads screwed on properly and when you go to the monastery, they go, oh, yeah, marriage, yeah, but monasticism and Marriage is not, it's not that long. You know, those type of things, when you hear those type of things, run for the hills. If there's no hills, just get in your car and drive off. Those are things. They're heretics. Anyone who speaks in a negative way whatsoever about marriage is a heretic. If any priest, monk, nun, theologian, bishop, or even an angel from the heavens says that marital relations is evil in any way or sinful, whatever, and then it says, let them be anathema. God's gift is insulted, says St. John Chrysostom. Marriage is the root of our very existence and we smother it with dung and filth. Now, dung, D-U-N-G, means uh, in Greek, corporea, I think they talk about manure. Dung means poop, in other words. So some of you will know. Uh, what other word? I can't use the other word. You're going to get upset. So I'm going to use a word that most of you know. Right? He says that what you're doing is like you're throwing that onto the, on marriage. This is what I want to wash away by my words. 
See, that's a, a word which was used in the olden times. Sort of word, D-U-N-G, dung. How many of you know that? Now, who are these heretics? We'll have a couple of minute break and we're going to come up now to the uh, heretics, which there are many of them today in the church. And we're going to read some accounts of elders, of people who were advised by priests to abstain in their marriages, etc., and cause catastrophes. And even if you've got a good priest, which, which is good, that is telling you the opposite, that's fantastic, great, but then the problem is that you yourselves might read the books and then misunderstand them and have the views which are heretical, and therefore by having such views you could be under the anathema. So let's have a little few minute break and come back in a couple of minutes. So we've gone through the first centuries of the church and there was a negativity towards marriage and sexual relations in the first three centuries of the church, that, that, that is true. And that wasn't because that's how the church taught, that's how people viewed it, like they, today they view a different thing. Then we went to the, Nicol, the, the Nicolaism. Then we went to the First Ecumenical Council, which was at 325. Now we're coming to another council, which was the Council of Gangra, which was in 340 AD. So 15 years after the First Ecumenical Council, this madness was still going on. But just at the break, someone came up to me that went on a pilgrimage to Greece, just to prove my point. They went on a pilgrimage to Greece and they were visiting many monasteries, women monasteries. And in one of the monasteries, the nuns were saying to these young women from Australia, um, this, was, this, this was their statement, Christ was present at one marriage Yes, he blessed that marriage, but even the person who was in that marriage left the marriage. So the man who was married, later on it, it says that he became an apostle and that he um, didn't live with his wife, something along those lines. But the main thing was that that comment, the way it was said, was to say that Christ was present at one marriage and that marriage the man left, in other words, that he didn't want to be in a marriage. What those nuns were saying is that marriage is not good. So they're heretics. So let's go on. So this holy council was held in the year 340 in the city of Gangra, which again is in Asia Minor. The council was assembled against a certain heretic named Ephstathios, Aristotle and his disciples held and taught heretical views regarding marriage. Let's see what they did. So it says, Aristotle led a strict ascetic life, which led him to fall into, there's the words, illogical and heretical views regarding marriage. Heresy, falsehood, is always illogical. You can always see, I'll, I'll give you an example. 
There are people in the church, or more before, but even now, who believe, and it was, this was even on, on Mount Athos, where there was full of holy people. And yet they had this practice that you cannot commune unless you've had three days without oil. Three days without oil. Firstly, there are no canons saying that someone has to abstain from food except for at 12 o'clock midnight. But of course, the church has a tradition that, you know, to require their faithful to do something. One day, two days, three days, depends on each, the church, the priest, etc. But these people were saying that they have to, it has to be three days no oil. What happened because of that? Well, what usually happens when something's wrong? Illogical things came out. Number one, they weren't communing on Sunday because it's forbidden to hold, not to have oil on Saturday. You cannot fast on Saturday except for Great Saturday. Every Saturday and Sunday of the year is you can't fast completely. You've got to have at least oil. And because they had to have three days without oil, it means they just man, the, the monks of Manathos did not commune on Sunday. They communed on Saturday after they fasted with no oil Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The sick people who couldn't hold without oil, they just went without a lot of times. Or they had to force themselves to have no oil for three days, even though they were dying. Is that illogical? Yes. So they were having communion on Saturday instead of Sunday, which is the day of the resurrection and the way Christians are supposed to commune. Not that they don't commune on Saturdays, we're going to hear in a minute, but the main one is Sunday. And these people were saying, oh, we can't do that because we can't hold oil. So they were, they were celebrating, they were communing on the day where the Jews celebrate, which is on Saturday. And, and agreeing with this were a lot of holy fathers of Manathos, even ones that we know are holy. Just like at the First Ecumenical Council, there were present 318 God-bearing fathers, and out of them, who knows how many, quite a lot of them, were actually thinking that they should put uh, restraints on married clergy not to have marital relations. So what does that show us? It shows us that, yes, even saints and holy people can make decisions or have views or even try to impose these wrong views on people when they're wrong. So this madness that existed in the church is, oh, if that saint said it, then it must be true. The church doesn't work like that. Only... In the Roman Church, does that work like that? When the Pope says it, then yes. Then they are obligated, because that's what they believe. They've got to follow what he says. So if he tells them to jump off the cliff, well, that's it. Because he said it while he was sitting on his throne, then they have to do it. But in the Orthodox Church, even a great saint, as great as he can be, if he's saying something which is not recognised entirely by the Church, we are not obliged to follow that view or teaching or whatever. So Manathos, as I said, was practising that, which was illogical. So let's just say, for example, let's say there was a feast day on Monday, the birth of the Mother of God, say, 8th of September. So they'll have to fast to, because you commune on feast days. That's a rule which we're going to hear soon if we get there, and 
we've got the feast day, is the mother of God, so it's the birth, the 8th of September, three days no oil. That means they've got to fast Friday, no oil. That's okay, because Friday is no oil for them. Saturday, no oil. No, I can't do that. And Sunday, no oil. So therefore, when the priest is celebrating the liturgy for the birth of the mother of God and says, with fear of God, faith and love draw near, no one comes. No one comes. Illogical. Just like at the First Ecumenical Council, the proposal was illogical. It was, one can say, silly. That's why we have synods, so that we can determine what is the true teaching and not have a papal situation where one or two saints say what is what Orthodox Christians should believe. They can have their personal opinion, theolumina, which means they can express their personal opinion, but if it's not recognised by the whole church, it's, we, we don't say it's a dogma, it's not something that we have to believe. It doesn't mean it's wrong, it doesn't, but it doesn't mean we're we are forced to believe such a thing. So here, Eustathios, being a heretic, had illogical things. Now, I'm not saying that the fathers of Manathos and the fathers of the First Communal Council were heretics. What I'm saying is that, because we're going to do this in talk 70, which is there were views that were expressed that were not recognised by all, but not error, then there was views that were expressed by Holy Fathers that were wrong, but they and heretical sometimes, but these fathers weren't condemned because they weren't fighting and trying to push their heresy. It was a personal view. And then we have others like Origen and others who who said heresy, who, who pronounced heresy, and were later on condemned and anathematized, as was their teaching and followers. So St. Augustine taught wrong. St. Gregory of Nyssa, they say, he taught some wrong things. But he's called the father of fathers. St. Fortius the Great explains all that. He says, or because someone says wrong, because they said some personal opinion which is not recognised by the church, it doesn't mean that we aren't in communion with that person, as long as the error is in innocence. In the case of the First Ecumenical Council, that was in innocence. The three days of Manathos. It was in innocence. That's what they thought. Somehow, maybe. You know what I think happened? If I can guess. Probably some ascetics that were living in the, um, in the desert of Manathos were practising such things. Well, they didn't have oil at all. And therefore, somehow it came about and said, well, if they're doing it, then it must be correct. And somehow, slowly, slowly, it crept in. But now they've moved away from that. Thanks to Haralambos. Tinusiatis, there, the elder there, and many others who brought back the logical thing of that's not correct to have three days without oil for them. Uh, and now they actually commune on Mount Athos, a lot of the good monasteries, four days a week. They fast on Monday, commune Tuesday. They fast on Wednesday, they commune Thursday. They fast on Friday, they commune Saturday. And Saturday they fast with oil and some even allow in the morning even eggs and cheese, etc., etc., because um, by the time that they commune the next day, it will be over 24 hours, and then they commune on Sunday as well. They commune four days a week. So that's the way, uh, that's how it... But it took years. 
to undo this incorrect teaching. But in the case of Eustathios, he wasn't teaching something which was in innocence. He had what we say in Greek, pisma, which means stubbornness. You can understand that the first fathers of the first ecumenical council can say, oh, well, you know, the priest needs to be pure. Maybe a little bit you can understand something there, even though it's a bit hard. But anyway, you can understand. And in the case of Manalfos, you can understand piety, yes, three days, you've got to be ready, prepared. But this person here, he went completely crazy. Let's see what he said. The 13 bishops present at the council deposed him and anathematized his teachings and excommunicated not only him, but also his disciples from the church. The canons of the council definitely received universal acceptance. They were accepted by the whole church in the Sixth Ecumenical Council. In other words, 300 years after. So that council was a local council. It happened for them, but it wasn't binding on the church. But then when the church looked at it years later, hundreds, hundreds of years later, they said, you know what, this teaching is 100% orthodox and it will now be accepted by the whole church. And what were some of these things that they said? Canon number one says, if anyone shall belittle marriage, like those nuns in Greece, or despise or condemn a woman who sleeps with her own husband, even though she is a believer and pious, and though she, as though she could not enter the kingdom of heaven, let him be anathema, which in interpretation means this canon anathematizes such persons who condemn marriage and despise a Christian and pious wife as unclean who sleeps with her Christian husband, claiming that on account of sexual relations she cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's how far off they had become. And for those people who believe that, anathema means they're cut off from the church. And as I mentioned earlier, there are some monastics and there are even some, maybe even married priests, who have a negative view against, about sexual relations because of their own, maybe their own problems. And they try to say to married couples, you know, you avoid it and avoid it and avoid it and avoid all these type of things anyway. So you've got to be careful of that. If anyone criticise, Canon 2, if anyone criticise adversely a person eating meat with reverence and faith, as though he had no hope of partaking, let him be anathema. In the interpretation of that, according to the commentators of, the, of these canons in the Rada, the Apostle Paul also prophesied that this would be proclaimed by the supporters of Astathias. Remember what I read in the beginning? Where St. Paul said there are people who say that eating certain foods and being married is evil. And St. Paul said this is wrong. So it didn't just stop at marriage. This is what I'm saying by madness. Now it went on to the next level. Now they're saying if you have sexual relations, you can't be saved. And if you eat meat, you can't be saved. For he says, following the above passage, quote, to abstain from certain foods which God created to be partaken of, end quote. That's St. Paul. For this reason... The present canon anathematizes such persons who condemn a person who eats meat with enjoyment, I bold, I, I made that bold and underlined it, and faith, who eats meat with enjoyment. What happened to what we said earlier on? Didn't some of the Holy Fathers say that they avoided pleasure, etc., 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 and then people try to practice that by making off food and making their children vomit? 
It says here, eating meat with enjoyment and faith. And who declare that he has no hope of salvation because he eats it. So, no, that's not correct, the fathers are saying at this council, which was later accepted. You can eat meat, you can enjoy it, you thank God, and yes, you can be saved. Now, again, there are monastics who do not eat meat. That's a practice. A lot, a lot of them do, by the way, but there's a lot that don't, especially Manathas. And some of them, be, and other monasteries, and some of them become proud and start condemning Christians that will go, oh, you eat meat, you eat meat, you eat meat. Christ in his parables used examples of lambs and goats and, and, the, and for the repentant, um, for the prodigal son, he even said about the cow, the calf, that the cow was slaughtered when the prodigal son returned. So even that, I've heard it. When I went on pilgrimages, I heard some monastics say to me things like that. And I even had a, an encounter with the priest who said to me that I should stop eating meat, that I should fast on Monday, and I was a layperson. Stop eating meat and fast on Monday. Which I nearly died of, by the way. But guess what happened? A miracle. In my ignorance, I was doing it. And later on, uh, something happened and he left. He had to leave. So I had to go to another, I went to a Russian priest and I was saved. Because now I wouldn't be here. I'd be at botany. If anyone discriminates against the married presbyter on the ground that he should not partake of the offering when that presbyter is conducting the liturgy, let him be anathema. This canon anathematizes those who discriminate and are inclined to avoid partaking of the divine mysteries, that is, Holy Communion from a married priest, on the allegation that such a priest should not serve the digi because he's married. So this madness said the following. Because that priest is having marital relations with his wife and he's serving the liturgy, even though he could have abstained the number of days necessary, that's not enough. They are forcing people not to attend his liturgy and partake of communion that he consecrated during the service because he's unworthy. So the madness goes on. By the way, that priest also told me to have no oil Monday, no, no oil Wednesday, no oil Friday. Uh, I had to fast one day before communion, etc., etc. By that time, I think I got down to 60 kilos. You can imagine what 60 kilos is. I don't know what that is in pounds, but go on the internet and convert it. When I would walk around, most people wouldn't see me because there was nothing left of me. Canon number nine, if anyone shall remain virgin or observe continence, in other words, observe chastity, abstaining from marriage because he hates it as if he had become an ascetic, and not on account of the beauty and holiness of virginity itself, let him be anathema. And the interpretation is virginity and chastity are a good thing, true enough but only when they are practised for the sake of the good itself and for the sanctification resulting from them. Not because we're proud, not because we want to become holy and so we can show off, but because we want to unite with God and we want to practise such things as we're going to hear later on. If, however, anyone remains a virgin or stays chaste, not for this reason, but because he detests marriage, as being unclean and polluted, as did the Ephstathians, 
he is anathematized by the present canon. Now remember, they're using the word chastity in this case to mean complete abstinence from sexual relations, but it doesn't mean that we can't apply the word chastity to those who are married who are having. Elsewhere, it said in the Rudder, the practice of even the highest Christian virtue, virtues, such as the preservation of virginity, if it does not arise from a worthy motive, is only deserving of the penalty of anathema. Again, just confirming. If a person is not abstaining from meat or not abstaining from marital relations for the right reasons, then that person deserves to be anathematized because the problem is that they believe that the others who are partaking of those things aren't saved. And we'll see now. If anyone leading Canon 10, if anyone leading the life of virginity for the Lord should regard married persons disdainfully, let him be anathema, which means this canon also anathematizes those who remain virgins for the love of the Lord, that's okay, so they remain in love because they, because they want to come closer to God, but who maintain a proud attitude as regards those who are united in lawful marriage, as did the Ephstathians. So these people come along and they say, I want to hold I don't want to eat meat, I want to fast, I want to not be married because I want to become closer to God, whatever they believe. But while having that attitude, they have another attitude with it which shows that something's wrong with their attitude which is that they put down all those who do eat meat and who, have <clears throat> who are married. And therefore they are deserved of anathema. Now St John Chrysostom Let's stop that canon for a minute and let's look at it, St John Chrysostom. He sharply condemns the attitude of those for whom virginity is merely a means of escaping marriage rather than being of use in one's sanctification, going so far as to say that in this case, virginity is more shameful than debauchery. St. John Chrysostom is saying that that type of virginity which is done for the wrong reason is more shameful than debauchery. That's very, very heavy words. St. John Chrysostom says those type of virgins, their life is worse than that of prostitutes and people who fall into all immoral sexual sins. That's how much he despised such a lifestyle. St. John Christum also says, now the virgins should listen to what follows. Virginity does not simply mean sexual abstinence. St. John Christum is now going to go to another level of virginity, not just physical, which of course is acknowledged by the church. He says, virginity does not simply mean sexual abstinence. She who is anxious about worldly affairs is not really a virgin. She's physically, um, I put this in, she may be physically a virgin, but not spiritually. In fact, he goes on, he says that this is the main difference between a wife and a virgin, meaning a woman that's married and a woman who's not married. The difference is, he says, he doesn't mean marriage or abstinence, but attachment as opposed to detachment from worldly 
cares. Sex is not evil, but is a hindrance to someone who desires to devote all her strength to a life of prayer. Now we're getting a little bit closer to the difference. So he's saying, now, the sexual relations that married women are having, or men, whatever, is not evil. However, it can be a distraction. And if someone wants to devote all their life, all their power, all their strength to prayer, then uh, it, would, it may be obviously easier to do that if you're not married. But what's the point in being a virgin or leading a monastic life if you're still attached to worldly things? Because St. John Chrysostom is saying the true virgin is one who's detached from worldly things. So if you're a monastic in the monastery and you're all, you know, reading your newspapers or all that type of... You can't be proud and saying, oh, look, I'm, look what I'm... I'm leading the, the life of virginity when you're distracted. That's not the whole purpose of monasticism. And St. John Chrysostom says this really powerful comment. Remind one another that nothing in this life is to be feared except offending God. If your marriage is like this, your perfection will rival the holiest of monks. He even goes one step higher. St. John Chrysostom changed his views as he developed in his um, ministry. In the beginning, he was, a, he was an ascetic, as you know. He lived in, the, in a cave, which after a few years he got sick from his excessive fasting and then he had to go back to the world. Then he became a deacon and things like that. His view on marriage was not as it was as he went on with his life. As he began to work more with married people, he began to start to see them in a different light. Just like Elder Paisus had to go through the temptations of the sexual thing to understand people with sexual, and a lot of saints have to go through certain things. St. John Christum had to work a lot with married people for him to get to this stage to say this. Remind one another that nothing in this life is to be feared except offending God. If your marriage is like this, your perfection will rival the holiest of monks, meaning will be equal to that of the holiest of monks. And I've got a little note here which I found to explain that. What does offending God mean? If married people then were to live in this way, that is, struggling in prayer, obedience to God, doing the commandments, struggle to love their spouse, to love their children, to love the poor, to give alms, not only would they become virgins, but they will even surpass the monks and the virgins in virtue is what St. John Christum is trying to say. If you're a virgin in body and you live in the monastery, but your soul is attached to distractions and worldly things, what's the point? Obviously, then someone in the world who's having marital relations, which are blessed, and is struggling with all these distractions to some extent, obviously, they could be greater than those living in the monastery. St. John Christum explains St. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, line 2. It says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. St. Paul saying, For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So St. Paul is saying to the people, that I promised you to one husband, meaning Christ, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, 
an explanation of this, St. Paul did not say these things to the unmarried alone, but to the whole church, because the woman who is pure in her soul is a virgin, even if she has a husband. She is a virgin and deserves to be marveled at because she has true virginity. Because virginity in the flesh, that means in the body, is an outcome in a shadow of virginity in the soul and virginity in the soul is the true virginity. He's saying that if you compare virginity of the soul and virginity of the body, we compare that by saying virginity of the soul is, is a great and virginity of the body is like a shadow. So this one here, there seems to be an emphasis on purity of the soul. And that even if someone's having marital relations, they can still be considered chaste, virgin to Christ. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This is quite remarkable. And that's why the parable of the ten virgins, five were foolish and five were wise. Why were the five foolish and why were the other ones wise? And he says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him, meaning Christ. The bridegroom came, and those who were ready, that is the five wise ones, went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards the other five virgins, meaning the foolish ones, came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now why would Christ say, I don't know you? They were virgins. Yes, they were virgins, now that we've read the before, they were virgins physically, but they weren't virgins spiritually. They had not acquired the oil, which says the oil, they didn't have the oil, that, meaning they didn't acquire the Holy Spirit. They didn't have virtues. What, what was the virtues that Christ was looking for in, from everyone? whether physical virgins or not. What he's looking for is whether we, are, whether, whether we have love, whether we have mercy, whether we have compassion. This is what he's looking for. And if we don't have that, basically he says, whether you're a physical virgin, it, I don't know you. It's not enough to be a physical virgin. It's, it, it is can be a help, but... What's the point in it if you haven't got spiritual virginity? And that's why in another part of the Bible it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Didn't we do miracles? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you you who practice lawlessness, exactly the same words as we heard in the five virgins. Why? Because they did miracles. That's not enough. Priests do miracles all the time. But if their soul is black, the priesthood still works regardless of their black soul. But if their soul is black and then they on the last day go and say, Lord, Lord, open unto me, I was a priest and I did miracles. And he will say, I don't know you. 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home and with him and he who does not love me does not keep my words. In other words, when do we receive this grace that Christ was demanding from the five foolish virgins? When we do his commandments. And what is the main commandment? To love God and to love your neighbour. If you don't have that, then forget it. You can, have, you can be the purest in your body, but your soul stinks. And another one where St. Paul says, if I speak with tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sound in brass or a clanging cymbal, and if I have the gift of prophecy, there's another one, and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I, if I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, another miracle, but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned, in other words, become even a martyr, but have not love, it profits me nothing. But, but didn't I say before that God wants us to be merciful, compassionate, help the poor? And yet he says, and if I give all my goods to feed the poor, then I'm nothing. What does that mean? Because giving money to the poor, a lot of people do in the world, but they hate God. A lot of people can give money to the poor, but it doesn't mean that they have a relationship with God. Because a lot of times we can give money for vainglorious reasons, to make us feel better, make us not feel guilty, or because we have some sorrow, but that's not what it is. Let's see what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not behave rudely. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Do all the miracles you want, is what St. Paul's saying. Give your body to be burned. If you don't have true love, which we see in us through the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, meekness, kindness, humility. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit, not howling, like I said before, like those people, and agitation and screaming. That's not the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And I love this one here. He says, but rejoices with the truth. But when you're saying, oh, that's, no, that, that, no, I'm going, but that says that, and you're trying to manipulate the truth to make it suit you, that's not love. Because a true Orthodox Christian has truth, that's orthodoxy, and love, the two together. And remember when we go through the toll houses, we come to toll house number 19 after we've gone through all the other ones, which I'm going to explain in the next talk, 16, 17, 18, about fornication and sexual, all those sins, which most people, the fathers say, won't get through. We come to number 19. And what's number 19? Heresy. So who will stand there? All those who had the truth of orthodoxy and they'll get through because they kept their orthodoxy, the faith. They didn't believe in heretics. They didn't pray with Buddhists. They didn't um, want to be the ecumenists, let's just say. And their orthodoxy was pure. But the poor things don't know that there's one more toll house. And what's the last toll house? If you remember from talk 40, 40, 48, talk 48, blessed are the mercy, that shall obtain mercy, the 20th toll house after orthodoxy, after our 
we've um, been examined whether our whether we accepted heresy is whether we've been merciful, whether we have love. And if we don't have that, you can be as orthodox as you want, but we will be kicked out. You see? That's the 19th step is, is dogma, which a lot of the zealots keep, supposedly there. And, but the 20th is the love. And I tell you one thing, they wouldn't even know what the word means. It's two. Now let's go on. Council 14 of Gangra. If any woman should abandon her husband with, and wish to depart because she abominates, in other words, hates marriage, let her be anathema. So it didn't just stop at all the other stupidities that they said about the meat and this and that. Now they go a step further. Now they were told you've got to leave your husband or wife. Interpretation. This too was a doctrine of the Estathians. The idea that is to say that women might leave their husbands and equally that men might leave their wives and depart on the ground that they hated marriage, considering sexual relations within marriage as disgusting and sinful, and that one cannot be saved because they are doing such things. Hence, the present canon condemned those who do this to the anathema. And there's a footnote there which says, for many women here in the Ephstathians, that is the, follow, the followers of Ephstathios, say that all women who are married are deprived of any hope of salvation because they're having marital relations, in other words. Such women departed from their husbands, but later, being unable to endure their condition like Nicholas the deacon, they couldn't endure, they thought that they could live a life without any sexual relation, but later on they were burning. Then what happened then? They fell into adultery and were criticised on this account. So they went for the better, supposedly, and then lost everything. St. Tikhon of Zadonsk, he actually says there's a custom during his time in Russia that some men leave their wives and some wives leave their husbands under the false claim of abstinence. They say, I want to be abstinent. I want to be like the ascetics. But this is a very dangerous matter. For instead of exercising self-restraint, in other words, when they leave their spouse to hold themselves and not have any sexual relations since they don't want it, they may follow the serious sin of adultery in one or the other or both parties. So you're going for the big thing and yet at the end you lose everything. When the husband leaves his wife and the wife sins with another, then the husband is responsible for the sin. And he, as he gave his wife the reason for sin, so if a husband says to his wife, bye-bye, I'm leaving because I'm holy-woly and you're going to, I don't care what happens to you. So off, goes the, off, off he goes and then she falls because of that, even if he holds, he will be responsible for her falling into adultery. Likewise, when a wife leaves her husband, and says to him bye-bye, and the husband sins with another woman, then the wife is guilty of that sin for the same reason. She's responsible. Father John Christiankin, in one of his letters, now that St. Tikhon lived a couple of hundred years ago, but Father John died in 2007. This epistle could have been written in the 19, who knows, 80s, 90s, close to our time. 
Father John said, not long ago I received a letter soaked in tears. A certain person blessed a respectable couple to live as brother and sister. A certain person meaning a priest. And after a quite brief period of time, demanded that they divorce. So it wasn't enough that they just uh, live as brother and sister, which is ridiculous. They also go to the next step, ridiculous in that, can they, are they ready? And why? Why is that important? Why is there an obsession to do this? As I said earlier on in the talk, there are so many temptations at work, at school. You can't, uh, everywhere, that's everywhere, it's just like a brothel. And yet, people are expected to endure all that and have no one to come home to. But as I said, when something's satanic, it just goes illogical, logical, logical. It just, just keeps on going. So let's have a look. So after they were brother and sister for a while, then he said to them, now you can divorce. And that's allowed by the church if a couple decides to divorce, to, to become monastics, for example, if both agree. Uh, and the loving spouse agreed to this with pain in his heart. So the husband agreed, even though he didn't really want to do that. Well, the finale is that, that in his old age, another consoler appeared in his life, in his life anyway. Another consoler means he found someone else to satisfy his needs. Another consoler, to console him. The grown children judged their mother's podvig, which is like their supposed, her supposed asceticism. They were upset and they judged her for that. And joined their father. In other words, they dumped her, as she deserves. The spiritual father, who blessed all of this, in the end banished the mother away from his sight. He caused it. And then he says, oh, look what you did, get lost. After all of this, she wrote me a detailed letter about the whole episode with the question, what should I do? My dear, these days we must not live crazily. It is God who rules the world and not people. There cannot be any direct orders in spiritual life. The Lord gave man spiritual freedom and he himself never deprives him of this freedom under any circumstance, which is what I said in the beginning. If someone doesn't want to fast at this stage of their life, then no one can force them. But I tell you, I think it's better to be guilty of transgressing a commandment at that level than rather than become possessed and hate the church, which is what a lot of people do when they're doing things that they don't want to do. And that's why he says here, you can't be forced. Even Christ himself said, whoever wants to. So think about it. Should you really take on the impossible in your situation? I love that. That's it. That's what I said at the beginning of the talk. It's impossible for, some, for a lot of people. The majority, 99.99999. again. Or 99.9 repeater with a dot on top. That means it goes on. No one can decide our important life decisions for us. Even in former times, elders did not command God's people. They didn't force anyone. There must be that freedom. Every person should think over what he wants to ask for a blessing. 
Now, he didn't say what he advised the woman, because she said, the woman that, that this happened to, she said, what should I do? I know from other letters that he said, this happened um, before me, this had nothing to do with me, work it out yourself. You caused it, you work it out. Now let's go back to the canons, canon 15. If anyone should abandon his own children or fail to devote himself to feeding his children, fail as far as depends on them to bring them up to be godly and to have respect for God, but under the pretext of ascetic exercise should neglect them, let him be anathema. So the madness continues. It's going on now. Now it goes to the children. And this is what happens. Everything false, everything stupid, everything ridiculous, everything demonic, always just like an avalanche. You ever seen an avalanche? Some of you have never seen one. But we've all, most of us have seen it on television. See, the rocks come down, then one comes down, another one, and then more and more and more and more comes down. And if you're standing there, well, you'll be covered fully, if not dead. This is what happens to people. When, they, when you fall into these errors, just the avalanche gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So we go from sex is bad, you can't be saved, then we go to I don't want to do it, but then, then you go on to if anyone else does it, then they're bad. Then it goes to the meat, so the meat's at fault too now. The meat's at fault, and then, then we go to the next level, which is that um, the virgins saying that they're, um, that they're holy because they're holding everyone else's trash, right? Then it goes on and on. What else happened there? Was some more, some more. What was the other one? Oh, you can leave your husband and wife. Now we go into the children, so they're not, they're not left alone either. The heretic of Stathios and those who sided with him, not listening to these apostolic commandments, used to teach parents to abandon their children in order to practice asceticism. Hence, the present canon anathematizes those parents who desert their children and fail to feed them and who teach them neither godliness and respect for God nor virtue. Now, I've told you there's an example here in Australia of a woman who had five children. The youngest was a few months old, if I remember correct. She left and she said, for the sake of Christ, I'm going to leave, and she went and became a nun. And not only that, I say here, this is what a lot of Christians do today. They neglect their children, maybe not to that level, but close to it, and pursue other things. I haven't got time to do, I haven't got time to cook today. We'll just have pizzas or we'll have some food full of trans fats, which will block the children's arteries quicker. And we'll just make like a lasagna from the supermarket. And which you don't even know what's, what's in that mince. You don't know if it's part cockroaches, whatever, you give it to your children and then you say, I'm going to go and do my prayer now. Or people who want to fast and they force their, their, their children to fast, they don't want to fast. They don't want to fast. They don't want to fast. When they're ready, like when my mother tried to make me fast a little bit, which was Good Friday, I used to go possessed because I wasn't in the church. And I said, in my mind, no one's going to tell me not to eat meat on Friday or any day. But years later, I did it on my own. I don't want to be forced. I want to do things because I like to do them from my heart, not because someone's forcing me. And that's what you should do with your children. Anyway, so these stupid people, they actually do all these things, like I'm going to read, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and they neglect their family. Don't talk to them. As I said earlier, 
a lot of them um, go on the internet, hours on the internet looking at spiritual sites, looking at chanting, looking at Manathos, looking at this monastery and that and that elder. And those things aren't going to help if you're not taking care of your children. You're, you're obliged to take care of your children. That's what God's going to command. Not if you went on the net, not if you did big prayers and things like that and, big, and, and other things. You are going to be judged whether you brought up your children in a Christian way, did you show love, etc. Now we go to the next madness, neglecting one's parents. If any children of parents, especially of faithful parents, should depart on the pretext of godliness and should fail to pay due honour to their parents, godliness, that is to say, being preferred with them, that is among them, let them be anathema. Interpretation is, this canon anathematizes those children who leave their parents unprovided for and fail to honour them or to take care of them in old age using the excuse of godliness and virtue. And I say here, this reminds me of those who don't take care of their parents. For example, they don't visit them often. I can't because I've got to go to the feast day. I've got to go to the vigil. Or they might say, they might not even let them live with them because that will, that will kind of, then they've got to take care of the parents. They're not going to have time to do their prayer ropes. Or they're not going to be able to go to church sometimes. And what, what, what do they do as well? They put them in nursing homes, which is the, which is the best solution for them. Because that way they can be free to fly like angels uh, doing their spiritual duties. Then we come to show you that this was not only a, a craziness in 340, but also I've got an apostolic canon. Now, the canons of the apostles, as is set out in the Rada, were not actually written by the apostles. They were formed later on, maybe in the 4th century, I can't remember properly. They were put together by holy fathers and said that this was the spirit, this was the teachings of the apostles handed down over the centuries. So that's what apostolic canon. It says, if any bishop or priest or deacon or anyone at all on the list of clergy abstains from marriage or meat or wine, now we come to the wine, now, not as a matter of asceticism, but because they hate them, forgetting that all things are exceedingly good and that God made male and female, and blasphemously mis misrepresenting God's work of creation, either let him correct his ways or let him be deposed, which means defrocked, not to be priests, deacons or bishops, from office and expelled from the church and let a layman be treated similarly. And I love this thing where he says here where the, where the apostolic spirit is that sexual relations, meat and wine, that these are created by God and they are exceedingly good. Interpretation. The divine apostles in their present canon are united commanding that any bishop, priest or deacon or anyone on the list of clergymen who forgets that everything that God has made is good and that God created male and female and abstains from marriage and from eating of meat and from the drinking of wine, not for ascetical reasons like a lot of the monastics do, and self-control and discipline of the flesh, but because he loathes them, he hates them. And in this way blasphemes, they call it blasphemy to have those thoughts, 
and misrepresents the works of God's creation by considering that it is unclean and evil. In other words, if someone wants to abstain from marriage, that's their point. If someone wants to abstain from meat, they can do that as well. And if someone wants to abstain from wine, they can do that. Elder Joseph did that. But to say that anyone else who has it, which is a sign, that's another signature of fanaticism and madness and deception, is that what the person's practising, they want to force it on others, and if they don't do it, then they're going to not be saved and they're evil, etc. And he's saying here, it's blasphemy to have thoughts that marriage, meat, eating meat and drinking wine, is unclean and evil. So people can have that if they're married, they can have their marriage relations and everyone else can have meat and they can have wine if they want. But if someone doesn't want you can't make a dogma, a teaching and saying that those who have it is evil and they can't be saved. So remember that. That's the fruits. The fruits of deception is the following. Pride, fanaticism, condemnation of those who don't follow the same way. Any such person, I say, can the, the interpretation continues on. Any such person, I say, must either correct himself and learn not to hate and reject these things by reminding himself of the fact that neither marriage nor lawful intercourse with a woman is harmful, nor is meat, nor wine, but only the misuse of them. Now that's excellent. And I underlined lawful intercourse, which means sexual intercourse, marital, and the misuse of them. I'll read it again. Any such person I say must either correct himself and learn not to hate and reject these things by reminding himself of the fact that neither marriage, the marriage itself, nor lawful intercourse, lawful, get the word lawful, in other words, allowed by law, by God, that nor lawful intercourse with a woman is harmful, nor is meat, nor wine, but only the misuse of them. Now we're coming to the, the next part, which is the, the answer to the question, well, if they're not evil, then why do people have to abstain? Why do people have to fast 40 days without meat? And why do people have to not have sexual relations, etc., etc.? So he says there, no, they're not evil. That's not why you're not having them. But the misuse of them is bad. If, however, he fails to correct himself, let him be deposed, that's, that's the clergyman, and at the same time be excommunicated, that is, cut off from the church. Likewise, if any layman has the same view that he hates these things, let him be excommunicated. And in the Concord for Canon 51 of the Holy Apostles, in agreement with what we just read, the same apostles depose, that means defrock, those in holy orders who fail to eat meat on feast days or to drink wine on such days, not for the sake of mortification, but out of disgust or hatred. In other words, if a clergyman goes to a feast day and the feast day has meat and wine and he does not have that, not because he thinks that they're disgusting, but he doesn't have meat and wine for ascetical reasons, doesn't judge those who do, 
if that person is doing that, then he's okay. But if he sits there, where he thinks that he's high and mighty, looking down at others and sitting there and making sure that everyone sees that he's not having meat and wine and making sure that people understand that the reason why he's not having them is because he thinks that they're evil, that person, he says, has to be deposed, such a clergyman. There was a time, even after the First Ecumenical Council, the Latin Church, the Roman Church, continually tried to make their priests to be celibate. They finally did it in the 12th century, but that was after the schism. But even, up to, uh, even during the many centuries that passed, um, they were obsessed with it. And they were actually, they actually made, it says here that there was a canon, which the Sixth Ecumenical Council, the 13th canon, it says... What the present count canon decrees is this. Since we have learned that in the Roman church, this is when they were still together, because the, the sixth ecumenical council took place in 681. The schism didn't take place until 400 years later. So, since we have learned that in the Roman church, that is in the West, it is kept as an absolute rule that those who are about to become deacons, presbyters, must promise and agree at the time of ordination that they, after their ordination they will no longer have intercourse with their wives. We, following the old canon of the Holy Apostles, which I just read, desire and hereby decree the marriage bond of those in holy orders, that means that the, those priests and deacons who are married, are to remain inseparable without requiring their separation after ordination from intercourse with their own wives when held at the proper time. That is to say, when there is no fast, by the sixth ecumenical council, if not within it, I can't, I can't remember, uh, uh, they had already determined that bishops weren't allowed to be married, but priests and deacons could. That's why we're sticking to the priests and deacons. So they're saying here that the couple should not abstain, should not separate, they are to continue to have marital relations after they're ordained. Only when there's a fast or only when the priest is preparing to serve liturgy or the deacon. Then they can abstain. And let him not be obliged necessarily to promise that he will separate from his wife, lest as a result of this we be forced to dishonour marriage sanctioned by the Lord's laws laid down by God and blessed by his presence at the wedding of Cana. So what the canon is saying is that we cannot force a priest or a deacon to stop having relations with their wife. It is wrong because, remember that by that time, they were taking the bishops from monasteries. They were avoiding taking bishops that were making someone a bishop who was already married. So that solved the problem. They were already celibate. But in this case, talking about ones who are already married and become priests and deacons, they were saying they must stop. And these canons say, no, you can't force them to do that because you're dishonouring marriage, Christ was present at the marriage, and you are going to cause problems. And he says here, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's what Christ himself said. So you can't force someone to divorce. 
and let marriage be held in honour by all and let the marriage be undefiled. St Paul. Another one, and again, are you bound to a wife? In other words, are you married? Do not seek to be loose. Do not try to separate from your wife. During the Turkish occupation, many Orthodox Christians were converted to Islam in order to avoid high taxes, as I said before, and persecutions. So as to inspire Orthodox Christians not to deny their faith and to endure hardships, the church produced accounts of the new martyrs, those martyrs who died during the Turkish times who didn't give up their faith to inspire the, the Orthodox Christians of the time. They were producing these, these, um, this material and spreading them out to as many Greeks as they could or whatever, uh, those under the, under the Turks, so as to inspire them not to deny their faith by reading these wonderful accounts of these saints who, under the most horrible pressures or torture, they wouldn't um, give up their faith. The same should happen today. The church needs to produce material about marriage, the lives of the married saints and the benefits of having many children, right? There, in my opinion, if I can say, which I rarely say it, my opinion, but there is too much emphasis on reading monastic books and making people crazy. Not that I'm against, we've got a lot at the back, but read them soberly. But when people, when I see people just reading those books and not reading books on marriage, then to me that's alarm bells. That rings alarm bells. Something's wrong. Those people are going to lose themselves. They're going to fall into deception. They're going to get confused. Today there is a move to do that, a bit late, but still at least better than not at all. But um, there, there has to... Look, look, look what I've done. Talk 54. 55, 56, 57, 58, 59, 63, no, 62, 63, 64, 65, 66, is that 12? 12 plus another couple that I did earlier on. Already done, with, together with this one, around 15 talks on marriage, and I've still got a couple more to go. I just, like, when I say, okay, that's it, I find out something more, I go, no, I have to do that as well. That's what should be done. When I see advertisements, come to our talk. Father so-and-so is going to come with his PhD to talk about the, Philoka the, the fathers of the Philokalia on the Jesus prayer and the, Nips the Nipsis, whatever they call it there, I don't even know how to say it, and all these things. I got myself, what are the, these people, are they mad or what? They're going to teach now about the fathers of the Philokalia to do with the Jesus prayer when the people come and still watch TV. When the fathers say uh, to cut off, they mean cut off all images. That's why they were in the desert. They cut off from all images. They would stay in caves and see nothing. So... Because the images disturb the prayer. And as you know yourselves, when we all, all of us, because we live in the world, we see things, etc. When we go to the prayer, it's like a television set in your, in, in your brain. And that's why it's hard. You can't practice the prayer of the heart like the fathers 
did because, one, we don't have elders that can guide us to tell us whether what we're doing is deception, because we, we can feel something and think it's from the Holy Spirit, but it's not, it's a demon, it's demonic. And uh, we've got too many images in our heads. And that is dangerous. But no, people are doing these talks. This is how serious it is. Hardly, hardly no one does talks on marriage. Well, there are, there are um, people that do catechism classes before marriage, which are fantastic, well, really, really good, but there's not enough emphasis. There was one church here, which I now want to mention, who he did a whole series of talks on the Jesus prayer going through the, the deep teachings of the Philokalia to a parish, to a parish of people who have no idea of the inner life. That's really sad, isn't it? I would have to say that's sad. How can a priest speak to Christians about abstinence and canons when a person doesn't know why one has to abstain from food and sexual relations in the first place? See? I went through now all about a lot of that, but considering that we just heard throughout the whole talk tonight that sex and food, wine, the meat and sexual relations isn't sinful, then that's good. We've got to that level. So if it's not sinful, why abstain? Why have these fasts? The Holy Fathers taught that Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were not sexually attracted to one another and did not have sexual relations. Even so, they lived in indescribable joy because they were in communion with God. In addition to this, Adam and Eve did not hunger for food or thirst. They did not get tired. They did not have a need for sleep. They did not experience pain, sorrow or sickness. Now you might say, but they didn't, they eat the fruit, whatever. That is not, ex I'll tell you why, that's, that's not exactly how it is. It does say something about you, you are not allowed to eat of the fruit but the eating is something different to the way that we eat. When we eat, we eat because we're hungry. To be hungry or to be thirsty or to get tired or to have a need for sleep would mean that a person would feel some type of discomfort. When do we eat? Oh, my stomach, I feel hungry. That's pain. That's like there's, there's hunger pain there. You get dizzy, you feel like that's not a nice feeling. When you're tired, you're out of it. When you're thirsty, it's a horrible feeling. You don't drink water when you're not thirsty. So you drink water when you're thirsty. You rest when you're tired. You eat when you're hungry. If those things occurred in paradise, then what kind of a paradise is it where there's discomfort? Where there's, even when we take sexual relations, when the person has sexual desire, even that's uncomfortable to some extent until they fulfil what they want. So therefore those things didn't exist nor will they exist in the next life because the eating of the fruit, whatever, is, was a, something more of a spiritual thing. Which is not really explained, I think. But, that's, but that is for sure. There cannot be these things in paradise because they mean that the person is uncomfortable, has some type of pain, some type of burning, etc. All this came into existence when Adam and Eve fell 
into the sin of disobedience. In other words, hunger, tiredness, sleep, pain, sorrow, sickness, sexual desire, sexual relations began only after mankind fell into sin, meaning Adam and Eve. Does this mean that these things are sinful? If, in other words, if they are as a result of sin, as was what some people say, because, as St. Augustine said, because sexual relations came from the sin of Adam and Eve, it means that sexual relations is evil. Then they go even further. Because eating meat or drinking wine or eating, etc., came as a result of the fall, that means that they're evil because sin produces sin. The sin of disobedience produced these fruits. That's the logic. But if that was the case, we know that Christ is sinless, but yet he was tired and he was thirsty and he was hungry. So that would be blasphemy and it's a heresy to actually say that Christ had sinned. Actually, to talk to you about the sexual desire, when I said before it's uncomfortable, etc., St. John Christum says, you can see St. Paul's common sense here. He says that sexual restraint, chastity, is better but does not force a person who cannot attain it, fearing that defeat may result. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So St. Paul actually calls the sexual desire a burning. Here he shows how great a tyranny the passions exercise over us. What he means is something like this. If you suffer with violent burning passion... Then relieve your pain and sweat through marriage before you utterly collapse. Now, if someone heard me say before, oh, but sexual desire, it's uncomfortable, etc. Well, if you're married, you would know that. And if you're single, you would know that as well. And St. John Christopher, listen to the words and I underlined them for you. Ready? What he means, what St. Paul means by burning with passion, it means that. If you suffer, underline, suffer, with violent burning passion, underline, then relieve your pain, underline, and your sweat, underline, through marriage before you utterly collapse. Now, if someone says to me that sexual desires is not painful, then they're stupid. So let's go through it again. Hunger is, is uncomfortable. Thirst is, can be quite horrid. Um, tiredness and sexual desire. Because St. John Christum is using those adjectives, nouns, whatever, suffer, violent, burning, pain, sweat, does that mean that it's evil? Well, does that mean that when you're hungry and you've got hunger pains, is that evil? Is that a sin? When you're thirsty, is that evil? Is that a sin? When you're tired, is that evil a sin? No, we just heard during the talk that sexual desire and sexual relations and meat and wine, etc., whatever, are not evil. But the misuse of them are evil. So if someone's burning, say a person's married and they've got sexual desire and they're suffering and they're burning and they are burning the passion, what we say, the, the desire. They use the word passion. People might think it's a negative, it means it's a sin. That's not a sin. That's, that's normal. 
There's not, that it's not a sin for someone to suffer, to have violent burning, to have pain and sweat, etc., etc., meaning to suffer, as long as they fulfil their desire in an orthodox marriage. That's the thing. So it's the same when someone has a desire to eat because they're hungry or a desire to sleep or a desire to drink. That desire is not sinful. Even though all these things came about as a result of sin, they are not sinful of themselves. Neither the desire for sex nor the desire for food, drink, rest, sleep are in themselves sinful. However, they can be abused and even perverted. If we eat too much or too little, it can affect our health. If we drink too much coffee or alcohol or sweetened juices and other things, soft drinks, this can affect our health. Too much or too little water can affect our health. Too much or too little sleep can affect our health. For example, too much sleep can make us feel sick and too little sleep can affect our health considerably. And most people today are sleep deprived. They wonder why they can't function. When we eat too much, we feel lazy. We can't think clearly. We, we don't feel like praying or you can't pray. I used to tell my students at school, look, when you're going to sit for exams or whatever, when you're going to study, don't eat a lot. Because when you, the food's in your stomach, the blood rushes down there, it kind of goes away from your brain and you can't think properly. Obviously, when you eat a little bit less and proper foods, not heavy foods, that helps with your thinking. Therefore, we cannot give complete freedom to our desire or need for these things without weakening our health or doing severe damage to ourselves and eventually even killing ourselves. So, or because food, eating food isn't a sin, if you don't do it properly, as we read on earlier, then you can, you can cause yourself a problem, then it's a sin. Sexual desire in the marriage, sexual relations, is not a sin. But if that's misused, what that means we'll see in a minute, but if that's misused, then it's a sin. For, um, the same applies to sexual desires and sexual relations in marriage. Now, let's have a look at if sexual desire and sexual relations are misused, they're not done properly according to God's law, what comes, what's the result? Let's go through it. Sexual addiction. Pornography, fornication, adultery, unnatural sins, which we're going to talk about next talk, sexually transmitted diseases, physical dysfunction. People can indulge in lawful sex, but if they do it, uh, if they misuse that, what's legal, they can actually cause themselves physical damage. People can become mentally, have mental hang-ups. Domestic violence has usually is a result of sexual misuse. Separation, divorce and even murder. So many people do diets and starve themselves. I remember when I was young and the doctor would come when I was really young and because I was sick, vomiting or whatever I had, 
and then he would start to say those words which used to really knock me out. For the first day, water only. For the second day, he can have some tea. For the third day, he can have some rice soup or something. For the fourth, I must have had gastric now, now thinking about it. And for the fourth day, this, this was like, to me, I couldn't stand it. It was up often. So obviously I was, must have not been very hygienic. So the, there, but that was, what he, that was the, what's necessary and still is. There was a special on 60 Minutes where they called it like a two-day of starving diet, five to two, whatever, I'm not sure it's called. The man said that in the old days that they're the hunters and when they used to hunt, then they used to go for periods without food and that period without food when they were until their next catch. They were starving and that starvation helped the person to become healthy. A little bit of starvation is good. And he says that long periods because sometimes they didn't catch an animal or something for a long time. But he says, but if people can't do that, he goes, at least two days a week. Oh, lo and behold, two days a week. Oh, Wednesdays and Fridays. The church, fe- the church fast day is just that. Wednesday and Friday is fasting, which is usually food which makes you hungry. Doctors prescribe fasts and diets for health reasons and can ask their patients to even refrain from sexual relations for health reasons. Sports people can refrain from certain foods, are asked by their coaches to refrain from certain foods and even sexual relations so as not to affect their performance. That's okay. Oh, that's good. They're going to get a gold medal for Australia. That's okay. But as soon as the church says you've got to refrain, it's like people want to... It's like they um, rip their hair or something, it's like it's too much. Example, a coach told his team to refrain from sexual relations during their training and playing in the World Cup recently. I think there was a whole thing about it on the, on the, on the news. Um, so that's what the coach said to them. You don't have any sexual relations, it's going to weaken you, it's going to whatever, refrain so that you can be, be stronger, whatever. Uh, only the church is not allowed to give any restrictions without causing problems. The fact is that neither marriage nor lawful intercourse with a woman is harmful, nor is meat, nor wine, but only the misuse of them. That was the, um, the, uh, the canon, one of the canons I just read. And canon two of the Council of Gangra, for this reason the present canon anathematizes such persons who condemn a person who eats meat with enjoyment. So enjoyment is permitted. St. Caesarius, brother of St. Gregory the theologian who lived in the 4th century, taught that sexual relations within a marriage and the pleasure associated with it are free from all sin and blame, that sexual relations within marriage are blessed. And St. John Chrysostom, in a talk that I did in number 63, if I remember right, how do they become one flesh, the man and woman? As if she were gold receiving the purest of gold, the woman receives the man's seed with rich pleasure and within her it is nourished, cherished and refined. It is mingled with her own substance and she then returns it as a child. So to be more specific, he's saying the woman receives the man's sperm together with her eggs, what he's saying, the two are mingled, 
but this happens with rich pleasure and they ret after that rich pleasure and the joining of the male, the sperm and the woman's uh, ovum, whatever it's called there, they produce a child. So the, the canon says, none of this is sinful, nor meat, nor wine, nor soft, nor intercourse, just the mis misuse of them. The Gangra canon says enjoyment of meat with faith. Cassario said there's no blame at all. And St. John Chrysostom even goes on to really get into the pleasure aspect of it. Yes, certain pleasures are not sinful. Too much pleasure can make our bodies and souls weak. For this reason, God gave us laws to use in controlling these desires and needs so that they would not get out of order and cause harm. For example, we just read that you're allowed to enjoy meat. But what do we know today? Too much meat can cause sickness. You can enjoy wine. Nothing wrong with that. But too much wine that can cause problems. Too much sleep can cause problems. And maybe what we can say is too much sex can cause problems. For example, the church prescribes rules of fasting to keep in check our desire for food. Therefore, for the good of our souls and bodies, the church imposes restrictions upon food and sexual desires so that we do not ruin the delicate balance between them. And the last part, if that's so, then why do we read in the ascetical books that they denied pleasure? We just heard that the pleasure associated with these things are not sinful unless you misuse them. However, the ascetics denied all pleasure, even lawful pleasure. Why do we read that? And therefore, people get confused. Let me answer. The ascetics and monastics deny pleasures that are lawful, pleasures that are permitted and not sinful. As we know from Elder Joseph, we read a lot of things that, they, that he did there to make the food off and to make his living conditions as, as uncomfortable as possible. And we read this in many of the lives of saints. Orthodox Christians who are in the world do this to a lesser extent. So, Orthodox Christians don't have to have and fast like the ascetics do. They've got Wednesday, they've got Friday. They've got um, fasting periods, which most people can't keep up with. We have um, feast days where people have to abstain from sexual relations. Saturday night, going on to Sunday, before and after Holy Communion. And let us not forget that Orthodox Christians in the world have to also endure with sicknesses, afflictions, raising children, the stresses of everyday life, which a lot of times are not found in the monasteries, which can be worse than what monastics endure. Now, I'm going to ask a question. Isn't that enough? Why add to it? Why do Christians have to add to already what's difficult for them? The monastics deny to a certain extent pleasures. They still have nice meals on Sundays and feast days. 
they have their wines on Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday and Sunday and they have their sweets, etc., their nice fish meals and all these things. Some monasteries have meat uh, as well. So they don't go to the extent and the ascetics, they just about deny everything. The monasteries were built on beautiful areas with beautiful scenes of the sea or the mountains where they would receive pleasure. St John of Cronstein, who was, a, who was quite an ascetical man, he would walk and go for rides on his, on his horse and cart there through the forests and he would enjoy nature, etc. The ascetics lived in the desert. There was no nice forests. They, didn't, they were completely cut off from anything of beauty. Even that they didn't want to enjoy. That was their choice. But it's not something which is for the people of the world to imitate when not even the monastics that live in monasteries imitate it to that extent. So we've got the ascetics that were extreme. That was their privilege. We've got the monastics in the monastery which do deny, but not as much as them. Then we've got the people in the world that deny less than the monastics whereby they have to have sexual relations, uh, they have meat while some monastics don't, and other pleasures, etc. However, however, the people of the world, the people that live in the world, in a lot of ways, which is why St. Paisius was very lenient, suffer considerably. And the devil doesn't want people to know that they're suffering for righteousness' sake, even just to hold your faith. What he wants is for you to read books and do more fasting and be more strict so that he breaks you, so that after that you don't do anything and you're, you're not saved, your wife's not saved, your husband's not saved and your children aren't saved. That's the whole point. Wednesdays and Fridays is denying the pleasures. If people keep to, to the best of their ability the fast on Wednesday, the fast on Fridays from food and sexual abstinence, if people do the, um, the feast days, if people prepare for communion which for a couple of days of fasting, whatever they do there, if people do the fasts, not all can do it, some find it difficult, which I was going to go through it. I didn't have time. Maybe the next one. The canons, etc. there of what, you know, um, what is the um, penance if someone can't keep the fast, the marital fast, if someone can't hold sexually during Lent, the church canons say there that they are to be penanced lightly. No interference. Very careful, the fathers, lightly. They're not going to go and force people and say, you must, but I'm going to go through that. I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, I just wanted to give a little hint there. I hope that you received benefit. But there was another um, 12 pages to go. I was going to go through all the... Um, very disappointed. Anyway... What can we do? I had some writings of Elder Paisios and uh, he was very lenient as well with this topic of sexual relations. Very lenient, very understanding, not forceful. Elder Thaddeus, not forceful. 
eldenectri of optina, not forceful, very, very understanding. Today, people have a high standard, too, sometimes too high. They want to hold the fast, let's just say even the, the, the physical fast, we know about most people break down with that. Let's say the sexual, the sexual relations. A lot of people want to hold that. But at the end, they put themselves into really, really bad temptations. And they've got to be careful. Now, some of you might say, are you saying that we can fall? No, I'm saying that we've got to look at how the church looks at it and perhaps it's not as what you think it is. That will help us in the next talk. Let's not be like Nicholas the deacon. Let us not be like the other crazy people of the past centuries and the crazy people that exist even today who try to make every single pleasure to be sinful and put on restrictions to Christians that are sometimes beyond them. Each Christian has to make their own decision. And even if they are breaking the commandments, which we'll see in the next talk, then they offer their repentance, as Elder Paisio said, without having to jump off a cliff in, in hopelessness. Because sometimes it's better to do the lesser sin than to fall into something greater. You've got to make a choice. Do I break the fast because I can't hold myself when, I, when I'm on fire? Do I hold myself? Can I do it? Or do I fall and just ask God forgiveness? Perhaps I can do it if I force myself, yes. Or perhaps if I hold myself, then the demons, the passions will bring about such a warfare that I could fall into something worse than breaking the fast. That's why the Father says, if someone breaks the fast sexually, they are to be penance lightly. Why? The fathers were scared. They were scared. They didn't want to put too much pressure because they were scared and they knew that how violent, how powerful how much these passions are strong in people and it could lead them to fall into adultery, pornography and some people before they were married could have indulged in unnatural sins, even homosexuality and the demons can come along and bring back the old memories and there can be married people who do fall into those things as well because they're too proud and stupid to say to their wife or husband, you know what, I can't do it. I can't do it. And instead of that, and accepting the penance, which is usually not much now in these days anyway, but let's just say, instead of accepting that, they want to be superman or superwoman and then fall into the worst of sins. So that's why the fathers of the church say when you have to choose between two sins, yes, it is a sin to break the fast, to have marital relations during a... It is a sin... But it's a, not considered as great a sin as the other things. And this is where we've got to be careful. People have to be careful. Get on your knees and ask God, help me if I can hold. If I can't, forgive me. Amen. Stand up.
Down. Down. 